Folks, I have nowhere else to start except with an apology. Um, I have been a very, very bad podcast host. Um, it is not lost on me that any kind of um, endeavor like the ones we've done with the Savage Wonder Literary Blog or the Savage Wonder Podcast require consistency. And we've been remarkably consistent uh, in the year plus that we've been going. But over the last couple months, obviously, I I was not able to do a Savage Wonder podcast. And it's a little ironic because I wasn't able to do it because this podcast birthed a festival. And the Savage Wonder Festival was taking up way too much of my bandwidth. Uh, I had tried to create a backlog of episodes. So I think we were running six weeks in advance. So I had six episodes in the can. And I thought that would allow me to maintain a pace of just one podcast a week, and that would carry me through the festival. It didn't, is the short answer. Uh, So as a result, uh, we went dark there on you guys for a couple weeks. Hopefully you guys are already plugged into the literary blog so you knew what was going on, or you're plugged into our social media. um, So you had other ways of knowing that we hadn't gotten hit by a Mack truck. There was, we had just gotten overtaken by events. <clears throat> Sorry, I just ate lunch, so I keep hitting the cough button. Uh, I apologize for that as well. Just full of mea culpas to kick off this first episode in a while. Anyway, I want to do a little summation on how the festival went. Um, and I guess I'll start by just saying, look, I'm incredibly proud of the uh, of my my you know managing director Lilla, who she and I were the ones really putting together the festival. We did it in four months, which is ludicrous. It was an incredibly chaotic time for Lilla as well. Um, Charlie. Faint, her husband, who you guys know because he's been on the show as well, is a member of our board of directors at Vet Rep. Um, Charlie retired from the Army, and uh, which triggered a bunch of things, like they'd have to leave West Point, they'd have to get a new home, um, you know, all that stuff. And that all happened literally like two, two and a half weeks prior to the festival. So Lilla was, you know, in between homes, and it, it was just absolute chaos. To be fair, she and I had known that going when we first agreed to do the festival. And I said, you know, you're going to have a lot to do. And she, um, being too good a soldier for her own good, uh, looked me in the eye and was like, we'll figure it out. We'll do it. And she did. And it, but it was, uh, it was a huge undertaking with all that stuff going on for her. For me, my family, we were we were had been renovating our house, so we actually weren't even at home. We were living in hotels and motels, so we were all discombobulated for most of the festival prep. I moved back into my house uh, in April, and uh, so I had the last couple weeks that I was home, kind of figuring some stuff out, but obviously consumed with the festival. So anyway, <clears throat> we were both kind of all over the place. It was a lot of balls in the air for both of us. So to pull off the festival in four months as a two man shop was um, if I do say so myself uh, uh, as ambitious and successful as it was crazy. And it was all those in equal parts. 
Um, and how did it go? Was it was the juice worth the squeeze? Yes, it was. It was um, an incredible event. Uh, those of you that went know that. Uh, those of you that didn't go, I'll kind of give you my, it's not a hot take because it's been a couple of weeks since the festival, so let's call it a lukewarm take on how the festival went. Um, obviously, it featured an awful lot of folks that you've heard me talk to on this podcast. Um, <clears throat> so many poets, uh, so many singers, songwriters, bands. And uh, it was a bummer because I thought it would also be a g- good chance for me to get so many folks that I hadn't talked to yet in the festival. And then I'd also be able to record a podcast episode with them. And that didn't happen. I thought we'd be able to do that in the lead up to the festival. But when I just couldn't find the time or the bandwidth to do podcast episodes, that plan went by the wayside. So now I'm going to have to call them up and go, Hey, let's do the podcast now, even though we don't have a festival to plug. (laughs) But uh, so major Glenn, Gethin Jenkins, uh, folks like that prepare for a phone call in the dangerously near future. But um, it it was just a great event. I had a great time. It was, um, you know, everything they tell you a festival is going to be, it's incredibly difficult to put together. It's an awful lot of moving pieces. Um, There's always, you know, most of the work you do is just not even known to people. Um, You know, we didn't have a liquor license until 48 hours before the festival. No, I lie 20 hours before the festival. <laughs> so, I mean, we had, uh, so that was a big issue. Uh, parking, we lost 1900 parking, no 1200 parking spaces, uh, uh, 10 days before the festival. Um, you know, just little things that we weren't really going to talk about, uh, that we had to run around behind the scenes and figure out. And that was one of the, the fun adventures of doing this festival. We did it at Sugarloaf performing arts center in, in Chester, New York. And it's absolutely drop dead gorgeous out there. I love that area. Um, Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center is incredible, an incredible venue. But they never done a festival before. So none of us knew what the dynamic was going to be like. How is the traffic going to flow? What's the, how, you know, how are, how's it going to work having two different stages? And, you know, <clears throat> how are the, where are the people going to come from? Then when Sugarloaf's annual spring festival, decided to move their date to coincide with ours so that we'd have a street fair going on right outside. Um, you know, uh, jury's out as to whether or not that was value added or, or not. Uh, I, I thought it would be, and I think it may still be. Um, we're, we're still kind of diving through a lot of those details um, and looking at some data and getting a lot of anecdotal canvassing going to figure out if that helped or hurt. But, um, but again, it was just an awful lot of firsts uh, for us, for the venue, for the area, a lot of things that we just had to pioneer and bushwhack our way through, um, and that and not a lot of time to do it. So um, I was incredibly proud of it. Um, obviously, the biggest thing I was just being proud of was also the least surprising thing for me to be proud of, which was the the performers. the The talent was just incredible, and everyone, <clears throat> you know, all the improvements that have to be made have to be done on my end. Um, the talent that we brought in uh, have very few, if any, improvements to make. I mean, it was just incredible talent. Everyone that has commented on the festival was blown away by the vibe. And I think the most valuable piece of feedback I got was from a former first sergeant who said it was the first veteran event he'd ever been to where there was no testosterone. 
which I thought was an incredible comment. Now, let me be clear. I, you know, I'm a big fan of testosterone and alpha maleism and stuff like that. That said, I get what he meant, which is that it was a very collaborative environment. There was not a lot of dick measuring. There was not, not a lot of, you know, swagger. It was all people just humbly sharing their gifts, collaborating with each other, um, you know, meeting each other, being inspired by each other, everybody pinging off each other and uh, creating just a really awesome um, laid back, but creative, energized vibe. And uh, I just couldn't have been more grateful, um, you know, with, with how that played out and who the performers were. I knew it was going to be good um, from the moment we had our, our pre-festival dinner the night before, and it was just a beautiful Hudson Valley night, uh, beautiful sunset. The musicians started breaking out their instruments, started jamming. Everybody was kind of talking, meeting each other. Um, you know, and you could see the collaborations and people's synapses starting to fire and going, oh, wow, hey, I can do this and I can, oh, that person does this. That's cool. And it was just an awesome creative vibe and um, couldn't have been a better celebration of veteran artists. So <clears throat> I was incredibly grateful. Plus we raised um, almost $10,000 for our uh, beneficiaries, which was great um, for year one. Obviously I want to do a ton better, but for year one, uh, yeah, it's just very grateful. So all of that is a long way of apologizing and saying to get all that together. Unfortunately, the podcast that birthed the festival had to take a backseat. Uh, so I was thrilled to be able to get back and actually do the podcast now. Um, I guess I, I'll, I'll be candid with you guys. I'm trying to think about what's going to be a sustainable op tempo for the podcast going forward. I think when you take a significant chunk of time off from the podcast and realize that there's no downtime, that you're, the amount of projects that vet rep is involved in right now, um, I mean, for the first two weeks after the festival, we were doing nothing but festival-related stuff still. Um, returns, picking up yard signs, doing thank yous, doing social media, doing interviews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, now kind of pivoting and, and looking at our next projects, like we've got nonstop projects lined up, um, which none of which I can really talk about just yet, but all of which are going to be very cool, very excited about. Um but I was like, crap, where's the podcast going to fit in with this? And you just hate, there's a part of me that just loathes half finished or unfinished business. And especially when it's something like a podcast or a blog, and I've started many of them in my time and they, and then after a year they peter out because life changes or whatever. Um, and I was like, but this, these are things I, you know, really have invested a lot of time and effort in and have an awful lot of value. And I did not want to let go. And, uh, and so I'm not, but it is a matter of going, can I do uh, you know, Savage Wonder plus Profiles and Havoc every single week, um, you know, 50, roughly about 50 shows a year on each of those platforms, so 100 shows total, um, and also do everything that VevRep has going on. I don't know. So I'm going to, I've got some ideas about what the op-tempo may look like, and it may be that this becomes a bi-weekly um, podcast and uh, and I continue to do profiles and havoc with havoc journal do that bi-weekly as well so basically every week I have one podcast to do as opposed to doing two every week and I think that might be more sustainable this is me kind of thinking out loud 
Um, so if you're listening to this and then you notice there's, <clears throat> you know, a ton more episodes queued up after this and it's only been, you know, a few weeks, then you know that I decided to keep doing a weekly podcast. Anyway, this is a whole lot of housekeeping I'm talking about up front because um, I feel like we've got a lot to catch up on. Um, but it's also a long way of, of kind of explaining where we've been and where we're going uh, and that I do feel negligent for having left you guys in the dark. Um, I seriously didn't even have time to do a mea culpa. I thought I was going to post an episode just to apologize for taking a break, and I didn't even have time to do that. So um, anyway, I feel like I've got a lot of making up to do. So um, I was really excited for this for our guest this week. Um, he's been on my radar for a while. Um, Philip Kennedy Johnson is a, a wildly interesting dude. <clears throat> he's an active duty army soldier, Sergeant first class uh, in the army band. Um, and in addition, he's an Eisner nominated comic book writer writing the Superman comic books, action comics, uh, alien James Bond, <clears throat> as well as his own uh, uh, comics that are not licensed. And uh, just an incredibly talented guy and operating in two very different mediums at the height of each of their games. I mean, for those of you that don't know comic book writing, Eisner Awards are like the Oscars for comic books. So to be an Eisner-nominated writer is a huge feather in, in a cap. And for Philip to have accomplished that is um, really something while still managing, you know, a full career in the army. And I think, you know, he and I talk about in the episode, you know, being a member of the band, I think army band is one of those jobs that it's very, you know, it seems it's like Uber pogish, right? It's like, Oh my God, they don't deploy. They, you know, just, it, it couldn't be more pogish uh, in reputation until you really examine it. And um, as he and I talk about in the episode, really, I think, band in the Army uh, at any level, whether it's the Army Field Band, the West Point Band, whatever, um, <clears throat> you know, it's the pursuit of excellence. And they are, and, and theoretically, all Army MOSs should have that, but we all know they don't. Um, band is really, that's, that's their, you know, it's incredibly competitive. And, uh, and the pursuit of excellence that, you have to have to survive in the army band is one of those things that just can't help but bleed over into the rest of your life for better or for worse. And we talk about all that, <clears throat> but anyway, I'm making a long point of both giving his intro and explaining why I was so interested in talking to him because he is such an interesting dude and um, what he's accomplished, what he's continuing to accomplish and also his frankness about uh, the struggles of trying to, um, you know, be a real Helen Gurley Brown and have it all. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy and it's not for the faint hearted and it's an interesting conversation. And I appreciated how much we were able to get into process and the process of writing of his writing process. And, uh, yeah, just really great time. Anyway, he'd been on my radar for a while. We had not been able to get it together. Uh, just a lot of scheduling stuff. Obviously I was getting deeper and deeper into the planning of Savage Wonder. Um, he's going in 18 different directions at once. So uh, fortunately, we just decided to push this interview till now. And I'm glad we did when I had at least a little more bandwidth 
um, which made me a bit more flexible and able to sit down and focus and talk with him. Uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. I've talked a lot uh, because we had an awful lot to say to open up this episode, but I think the one thing I forgot was to actually give the proper intro. So in case you have not clued in on it, you're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists, long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. I am Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Vet Rep, and this is the Savage Wonder of Philip Kennedy Johnson. catching your breakfast too i just did the exact nice. same thing i just so I'm, I'm getting in a habit now where i'm drinking my cereal in the oh. morning because i just don't have time to actually stand and do anything so i put it all in a cup and then i try yeah. to drink it while i drive and it really doesn't work because i get all the milk first <laughs> and the cereal just sits at the bottom and then right. at one point that's usually on the, on the trickiest s turn that's when it all hit me in the face when i'm trying to just chug it down yeah dude we're living, the, well. we're living the same life <laughs> so you had an all-nighter last night yeah, well, I did. I sex not true. I said I didn't sleep like three hours. But yeah, I've got this. They've got this. Um, there's this issue of Superman that just got added. Like it's like so the monthly book is still coming out. But um, between us, they wanted to get they wanted to get Superman back home from War World a little bit sooner, and so we did like this double-sized special issue that's kind of like an additional thing so it's that's its own thing plus there's also the monthly book coming out and there's bond and there's alien and everything's just happening at once and i'm just just drowning even more than usual well i mean that kind of asks the obvious question dude i mean how are you how do you juggle your life anyway that's my biggest question for you it's like what's your day-to-day schedule like because i don't know how you shoehorn everything into your life that you have going on well, I figure we talked about it on here. Are we, are we, is this, are we going to use this part of it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I just struggle a lot, honestly. It's, uh, that's, that's the real answer. I, um, I, um, I just get up and I work until I go to bed and I, it's, it's been really hard, uh, especially with like having a, having a son too. Um, I'm devoted to being a good dad. And that's, that's my number one priority. Um, but I'm also trying to, you know, do right by the army and I'm trying to do right by DC and Marvel and this other publisher I'm working with now too. Um, it's hard, man. I'm, I'm having a kind of a, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my best shot, you know, how, how long have you been on this treadmill where, and by that, I mean, where you've been doing by my count, let me see army band writing um everything associated with that so i guess everything at an elite level that's all been firing on all cylinders for you how long has that been going on how long you've been on that treadmill balancing both those um probably about five years um my first printed published book on shelves was last sons of america that was in November 2015. 
but that was the only book I was doing at the time. Well, I mean, I had a, a web comic that was coming out, but that was just like one page a week. It was, it was mm-hmm. coming out very, very gradually over the course of like two years, a new page would come every week. The first book that I did where I had to meet in, I had to like turn in a book for a, for a deadline to be printed the following month and all that. Yeah. Um, but that was just one book. And granted, I was also not as efficient a writer then. So, I mean, if they, if they gave me three weeks for a script, I used every bit of it just for that one. Uh, and now I don't have that kind of time anymore because now I'm, now I'm doing, you know, action comics, alien bond, this other project that I can't talk about yet. Um, and that's every month. So I've got about five days to do each one. Plus there's also revisions on the things that go like throughout the process, plus the day job, plus being a dad, plus trying to keep in some kind of shape. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's, it's just, it's too much, man. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing everything, but I care about all of it, you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm not really, I'm in this weird place where I'm not really willing to let any of it go. So what do you do except just keep giving it your best. And there's a lot of sunken costs and all that too. I mean, those are not easy mountains to climb and you've kind of climbed them and you're just the peak of a lot of different summits all at once. Right. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the army field band is a not screwing around organization and um, I'm able to, you know, to maintain my chops at, at the, the level that I need to perform with these people. I mean, it's, it's a really, really good group. I mean, there's definitely a time when I was when I was shooting for this, when I was trying to get to the Army Field Band, where I could not have done that while also turning in, you know, a ton of scripts all the time. Like I had to just devote my life to music, like any professional sure. musician. Sure. You had to just go all in and make yourself this, you know, the very best version of yourself as a professional musician. <clears throat> and then when writing came along, it was kind of the same thing where I I had to devote myself to that while, I mean, there's, but you've got less bandwidth because you've still got this other job. Um, it's a lot. I'm still kind of nav- trying to navigate when people ask me, like, how do you balance and all that? Like, I don't know what to tell them because honestly I'm failing hardcore. Like I just, the balance is yeah. just not happening. I, yeah. I just, I just constantly work. Um, and it's, it's too much, but it's, it's also, I'm also doing work that I hope I'm going to always be proud of. I mean, this is work that I, that really means a lot to me, not just the, the comics, the story, the stuff that I do with the army matters to me a lot. I mean, we're, we're connecting America to its army. Uh, we go places where the army might not have much of a presence, if any, we're some of the first soldiers that a ton of people meet ever. We're also giving this huge thank you to veterans that they desperately need and deserve. And like in some cases, people that, you know, fought in Vietnam and never got a thank you at all. Yeah. You know, they, they came home, put their uniform away, never looked at it again and kind of just glad to have it behind them. And then they come to our concerts and we honor them for what they did for and for the sacrifices that they made or their widows and, or their, you know, loved ones that helped get them through it or all these people, you know, gold star families, dude. Yeah. Like this is, it's a huge, huge honor and it's really important work. Um, So I'm not ready to give that up. You know, that's, that's worth, that's worth some, uh, some late nights. So let's walk this back um, just a little bit. How did the writing start? Because at that point you were already, at a full sprint with the army, right? When the writing started to happen. I was, yeah. I was, um, I, let's see, I got to the army field band in 2005. And some years, like, I can't, I'm not sure what year it was, but between like, between three and six years later, um, I've, I've got this younger brother, Bill. And he was also a musician and artist. I got back in the day, like when I was a kid, I wanted to be a comic artist. And uh, at some point I kind of 
moved over into music and that was what I felt like I was better at. And that was going to be my, my ticket out. And my brother, Bill did both those things too, but he kind of went the other way. He became, he wanted to be an artist. And at some point he kind of, um, kind of wailed at the moon one day where he was just having a really hard time and, and was like, I don't know what to do. He, we had this phone call where <clears throat> he, um, he seemed kind of lost and was having a really hard go. Um, he was going to community college and do it. Okay. But not, not lighting it up and um, not loving it either. And it wasn't what he wanted to do. I mean, he was, he was just kind of knocking out some college so he could go someplace else and do some other degree. He didn't really want he, what he really wanted to do was go to art school right. and, and make comics. And he had just no idea how he didn't know how comics were made. He doesn't know how the industry worked. He didn't know how art school would, would work or how he would pay for it. He was just like, kind of threw up his hands, like, what the hell am I supposed to do? And I just don't know what to do. And I kind of, I really felt for him. And I was at the time I was looking for another creative outlet. Like I, I put all my emotional and professional, you know, eggs in the basket of being the best musician I could be. And at some point um, I just needed another mountain to climb. And I was like, am I just going to like what, you know, what now? I guess I'm doing the job. I'm good at it. I like it. Um, but I think I need, like, I'm not a complete person. Like I, I, I've, I've been given up so much just to, to, I'd sold my soul to the practice room just to be the best musician I could possibly be. And at a certain point I was like, how much further is there that I can achieve as a musician? Not to say I was the best I could ever no, get, but, yeah. but I mean, like how much better can I realistically get? Like, what can I, what can I, I was still like chasing it and trying to get better and trying to push the career further. And I wasn't exactly hitting a wall, but I was definitely getting diminished returns. I was like, what's the next thing I'm going to do? What am I, what am I trying to do next? And I was like, maybe something new. Like I was, I was starting to write my own music, like write music for myself, for, for me to perform with the band, like mm -hmm. features, feature solos and stuff with my brass quartet at the time. And that was all fun. Like I was, I was kind of changing focus. And when I realized that my brother needed help and that he was, um, kind of in a bind um i was like well you know i just that kind of became my new thing i was like dude just just move in with me man we'll we'll figure it out um i live up in the dc baltimore area now um you know we can uh, we'll go to comic conventions we'll find a good shop we'll figure out what the industry looks like you know we'll, we'll just figure it out we'll get we'll literally get the like comic book for dummies book you know yeah yeah and we'll just sort it out. Figure. Out. I mean, people do this job, so I mean, why not you? We'll figure it out. And that's totally what happened. He just he moved in with me, and um, I started going to conventions with him. We started. He was. Uh, he discovered that the army had uh, a job called multimedia illustrator, twenty five Mike, that um, that trains you in like the software that artists need to know, like Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop and. Um, in design and stuff that people use to make comics, the army needs people to do that shit too. And at some point he, he discovered that. And, um, he, and there were other branches that have similar equivalent jobs. Right, right. The, the army one just seemed the most, like the clearest, like the, the, the most useful to him. And um, that kind of, we kind of shifted focus. So we, we kept going, we kept making comics. Like I would write these short stories and in poems and stuff for him to illustrate. 
just to give him a portfolio just because he didn't have any pages of sequentials. So in, in comics, they, they call it um, sequential storytelling, quote unquote, yeah. where it's not just an image of Wolverine looking cool. Like that, that would, that would be called like a pinup. If it's just a single image of somebody looking cool, that's a pinup. You need to have in your portfolio um, sequential pages where you're going like storyboards, you know, where you got uh, one page with multiple images and you see how the storytelling works for you. Gotcha. Um, you got to have those if you're, if you're making comics, because there's all kinds of people that make incredible pinups that don't really do the storytelling thing. And is it on you to be the sole creator of both, or is it something where you can work as a team and it's, and people are used to seeing, Oh, you're doing the story and this guy's doing the illustrations. Oh, work as a team very often. Okay. I mean, it's there when people are starting out or just not experienced yet, very often they'll do their own, but, um, but even if somebody else is handing you a script, um, I wish I could explain the nuance, but there's, there's definitely, I could give the same script to 10 people. And some people will have a, will, will turn back a page. will give, give you a page that's uh, very cinematic and makes total sense. And you can, the, the eye is just drawn through the page from panel mm-hmm. to panel and the, the angles make sense in a way that a movie or TV show, the way that we've kind of been conditioned to experience that stuff like over the shoulder shots while somebody else is talking to the other yeah. character or blah, blah, blah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, there's stuff that we just kind of don't even know that we need, but when it's not there, you're like, right. well, this is weird. This is janky. Um, you got to kind of show that you can do that, you know? So um, I just started writing stuff to uh, just strictly to give him something to draw. And at some certain point I was like, damn, this is fun. <laughs> and we, uh, I just really got the bug. Like it was uh, the collaborative nature of the process, the way um, that collaboration can really change the product, the way that any changing out any one person in the group, the, whether it be the writer, penciler, inker, colorist, letterer, um, change out anyone in the band, quote unquote, um, and the whole product changes. And I love that. I love that. It's like small group jazz is that way. You change out the bass player and everything sounds different. Um, so I just really fell in love with it, man. And the more I learned about it, the more it, it has in common, I found, with uh, with music, all the stuff that I've been training to do my whole life. And it's really not that different of a process. <clears throat> um, it's different chops that you got, you know, different muscles you got to learn to flex, of course, but, um, but the similarities are striking and the, the ways I learned to collaborate as a musician, but also the way that the army just beats the concept of team into you all the time, mm-hmm. especially in training, but then the rest of your career, really, that is also hugely beneficial. I found that to be a, a, a real, a real help to me when I was learning how to work with others in the comics. So when you and Bill were working kind of learning the ropes where did the break happen did he break first did you break first is it a joint portfolio how did it happen that suddenly you saw some daylight with that um so he and i were doing it together and um, just to help him get his feet get on his feet and at some and then he so he was like we were doing everything we discussed he was also working out with me in the mornings and you know training for the or studying for the asvab and all that and because he had to have a certain like a relatively higher um, score in a couple areas of the ASAP to get that that MOS. So he was going to enlist. OK, and do 25 Mike. Gotcha. Yeah. Or- he, and he ended up doing it. And he uh, he he got in shape and he passed the the ASVAB with the score he needed and did basic. And he did six years of brag. 
and as a 25 Mike. And then when he got out, he went to SCAD, to Savannah College of Art and Design, which is a very prominent school for artists. Um, he went there and uh, and finished. Now he's now he's making books. So boy, that's well, a that's a recruiting poster right there. I know Join the army and look what happens with your I know card. he and yeah. he he paid for it with well, he got a actually he got a scholarship based on his chops that he in part that he had cultivated in the army. Wow. And the port the portfolio that he had built in the army, but also he got the GI Bill. So they were paying him to go to school and he was doing really well. Wow. And now he's out there doing it. So yeah. Wow. As as far as who who broke first, that would have been me. Um he's not doing like big stuff yet, but he's you know, that's that's comics. He's he's got a he's very he's got a very specific style that's not really well suited to DC Marvel. So he might not be doing books that you heard of, but he's uh, but he's, he's his storytelling is great and he is he is working. So um, it's been really cool and the, the idea is still to for him uh, he and I to work together. Um, cool. <clears throat> so, but you were breaking and because your writing was kind of catching people's eye, right? Yeah. So I yeah I'd written a couple of things with him. And while we were educating ourselves at cons and just kind of getting the lay of the land, I was finding other artists that I really liked. Some of them were cool people too. We started, and we started making friends the way you do. And um, at some point I started asking other people to work. Well, let's see what happened. We, we actually, another like gentle army tie. We uh, at a convention, I think in Baltimore, there was this book called <laughs> FUBAR. And they set up this whole booth, super legit. Like some of the some of the booths that you see at, at, in Artist Alley, at um, at conventions, are, <clears throat> can be kind of theatrical. Like they might have like mm. quote unquote booth babes there. Like they'll have somebody oh. up there like hanging out, handing out stuff, or they'll doll up the booth in a very theatrical way. Like this this one dude that was selling his his fantasy novels would dress up in cosplay himself. He's a bodybuilder, and so he'd like he'd deck out and be one of those characters and like. Wow. And uh, go like way overboard with you know body paint and all that. Um, so and the Fubar guys kind of did that. They had this booth that looked. They did it all up, not like a foxhole exactly, but they had like, um, like camouflage hanging from. They had like these like four posts and like a little a little thing over the top and like yeah. camo everywhere and made it look look like it was a little, almost like a machine gun nest or something. And um, and they were selling books. And so the concept of FUBAR was they were military themed, like war themed zombie stories. And initially, oh, cool. I can't remember if it was all World War II initially or Vietnam. I think it was Vietnam themed at first. They've, they've done a bunch of these and antholo- they're all anthologies of short stories. And uh, the first one was super specific. And I think they did a couple more volumes that are very much the same. And then they started to branch out. There was one where there was one from the looked like it was from the perspective of the East during World War II. So huh. you're seeing you're seeing like you're seeing like Japanese zombies. Maybe there were even some like old school samurai ones in there. There was one during the American Revolution. There was like they, they wow. started to branch wow. out and there, it's all zombie stuff. That's crazy. Um and it's kind of kind of fun. I flipped through yeah. it and we, we bought a couple because it was fun. <clears throat> and also the the guy that ran it was seemed like a really cool guy. So we, we became friends and I bought his books and um, we were reading through it and not to say they were bad. They were good. They were fun, but we were looking through it and kind of looked at each other. Like, I think we're this good. I think, do you want to submit mm. to these guys? Like maybe we can get a story in one of the food bar volumes. He's like, yeah, man, let's do it. So, and we, um, we kind of settled on an idea 
I'm sorry for rambling here. This is no, no, long, no, you're good. A, no, you're not rambling story, at all. Long, it's kind of a long story, but it's, um, yeah, the first legit story that we ended up doing, or that I ended up doing, began as an idea for a foo bar. Um, my brother and I are like Bill more than me, probably, but we're history buffs, kind of. Mm-hmm. Like we just like we're interested in that kind of thing. I don't read as much as I want to now because because I'm drowning, but um, but I love. Um, I don't know. I just really dig history. And we, at some point we, we've been kind of, we'd watched us boot again. And we were just kind mm. of looking into those days where, you know, Germany was filling their, their trenches and U-boats with um, teenagers and old men because they were running out of yeah. warm bodies to yeah. fill their armies and Navy. Um, so by the end of the war, plus, I mean, the, the Brits, kind of had their number as far as how to deal with u-boats by the point by the end of the war they were blowing those things up sure. left and right and um and they were filling them with kids by the end um and we were just, i was just thinking about um I, the fubar volumes are all black and white and i didn't want a story that was gonna be black and white just because we were too cheap to hire a colorist or because that, mm. that was the most convenient thing for the for the printing i want a story that would feel like it should be black and white, you know, like, so we started thinking about this period of horror story in which um, the, the, like this, this U-boat full of German teenagers um, are transporting a, uh, some kind of bio weapon and they don't know what it is. And it turns out to be a zombie head and, you know, everything goes horribly wrong and there's this outbreak on the ship and all that. And uh, the more I flesh out the story, it became much too big for that, for one of those huh. anthologies. I was like, huh. I feel like to do this story justice, it would be too big for Fubar. And uh, I asked Bill if he wanted to do it, and he was way into it. But he also was getting really busy. I think by this time he might have been in the army already. Either he had just enlisted, or he's about to ship out, or something. Okay. Um, so I was like, would you have a problem? Like we, I was kind of waiting on him. But at a certain point, I was like, would you have a problem if I did this with someone else? He's like, no, man, do it. We'll do something else. So he was he was doing his own stuff, and I. I uh, looked at various artists to work with. And uh, actually we did some pages with a, a di- with one guy that eventually fell through. And then I jumped to another artist, which sometimes happens. Um, and we found this guy named Steve Beach, who is just a horror savant. Just unbelievably good with horror. Also has this encyclopedic knowledge of, of metal music and of horror movies. And just a really interesting guy that knows so much about a certain, like about these subculture things. Yeah. And uh, he's a, just a fucking genius, man. And I was like, would you want to do this book with me? And uh, he, he ended up doing it. And that became technically my first book, even though it was not in print yet. It was, uh, it was called The Lost Boys of the U-Boat Bremen. And it was ends up becoming this five-issue thing, which is still on my website for free, if anyone wants to read it. So it's like 110 pages, all free. Unbelievable art. It is my first comics. It's a little wordy. It's probably something I would have done. I would, some things I would have done differently if I could do over again. But the whole thing is from the perspective of um, it's, it's a journal. Like every every page is a journal entry by this this Nazi kid who's scared out of his mind. Um, and the the ship gets blown up and stuck at the bottom of the ocean, and they're trapped in there with this thing. And it's not about zombies anymore. At a certain point, I was like, we got enough zombies yeah. and werewolves and mummies and all the same old shit. So. I made up a new kind of monster that was much more distinct and had its own history. And so it's not about, it's not a zombie story anymore. It's a horror story, but not like the, we left the zombie head thing behind, like right at the very beginning. And this was yours, right? This was independently yeah. 
produced. Like, yeah, that was all me working with anybody. Yeah. In fact, when I, when I got the artist, um, I was still kind of figuring out how the whole ownership thing worked. And so I, I paid him out of pocket because I, for him, he was taking like the artist, Steve was, was taking, he was, he didn't have a pot to piss in. He was like really poor and, and unbelievably talented. And I felt like I needed a Pam yeah, to, to do like legit Pam, not just a, not a pittance, mm, but, yep. but I could pay him enough to that he could like actually survive while he was doing this thing. So I paid him a page rate for every page of that of that 110 page book. And I there was no realistic expectation that I was ever going to get any of that money back. Sure. But I just had the bug, man, and I wanted to get that book done. And I was super proud of that story. And there's always a chance it'll get developed into film or TV or whatever, sure. or at least get at least get printed. But even if it got printed, I would not be as a nobody, I would not be getting uh page. I would not recoup the costs that I that I gave him. Eventually I did recoup the costs, but just barely. <laughs> um and, and it turned out beautiful. He did some of the best work. He did the best work he'd ever done at the time for sure. And now he's doing action co- uh action comics covers with me. Wow. He's doing wow. cover covers for Superman. And they're some of the best covers you've ever seen, dude. He's so good. And he's he's never done shit with anyone but me, hardly. Um, wow. It's just this insane guy who's just like, you know, afraid of the internet, afraid of fame, and, and just like he just does comics when I give him stuff, basically. And he's a, one day my legacy will be discovering this guy because he's incredible. Well, talk a little bit about that culture of comic book writers. So, I mean, my my comic book reading just as a, as a bona fides was late eighties. Super, I, I read some Marvel. I was mostly into DC. Um, big into I, I was. So it drove me nuts when the Suicide Squad movie got made because I was like, that was my comic. Like, this isn't for the masses. This was a this was a niche thing. I loved that DC, that early Suicide Squad checkmate. Um, I think my only yeah, Marvel man. was Punisher. Um, but that was the stuff I loved. And then um, you know, uh, as as I got older, it, it just strayed away. But my my sense of the comic book writers looking back at them. Um, I'm thinking of like John Ostrander and some of these other guys who, who I, whose work I seem to follow reading Manhunter. Remember man, the old Manhunter uh, comics. Anyway, like a lot of those guys, it seemed like they were pre subreddits of people. Like they, they just have this, it, it, like you said, kind of encyclopedic knowledge of various subjects that are distinctly unappreciated. And this is the one outlet to kind of manifest all that knowledge. So you feel like they're shoehorning like different little trivia and other things in there. And it made it really eclectic, interesting stuff, but I've never met anybody that did comics. So this is just my outsider's perception. Is that true? Or what was your impression of the culture, especially coming from the army where you had a different sense of teamwork maybe? Yeah, man. I was so impressed with how everyone was in it for the love of the game. Everyone was, I mean, the way that I, I thought, I just talked about how I sank, I sank the money into that, that book. Cause I just, I really wanted to tell a story that I just had to tell. It was just like, yeah, the story was just like ripping open my mouth and crawling out of me. Like I've got to get out somehow. So I was like, let's just do it. And I had, you know, I had a steady gig. Like I, one thing that, yeah, one thing that kind of set me apart from so a lot of people I was meeting is that I had a steady day job that that paid well, and or we you know well enough to do it at least to do this. Yeah, yeah. And some people are just like all they're doing is comics, and they're just really struggling to 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 get by. You know, because I mean, comics is awesome; it doesn't pay super great, and they um they're just so unapologetically themselves. 
And like they were just so clearly in it for the love of the game. They just love what they love. They make no apologies about it. Um, and like you say, there's like kind of had this this counterculture or at least like psychotic industry kind of feel to it where they're just making what they want and there's no studio telling them what to do. Like it's, they can just the unfettered creativity that you can, that you can explore in comics. Whereas if if you wanted to make a a movie, if you got this idea for a movie and the concept is incredibly out, like like just crazy or, or offensive or, um, incredibly niche and specific that no one's going to give a shit about, but you um, <clears throat> something that you would have a hell of a time finding funding for on a big level or getting studios to shut up and let you do the story that you want to do. You can do relatively inexpensively in a comic and all you got to pay is an artist, or if you're the artist do it yourself, or if you don't mind it looking a little rough, you can just draw yourself, you know, like you people, mm. there's this whole other part of comics called zines as in, an abbreviation for a magazine where they just do these like mini comics that are just printed like on a, on a photocopier, you know, like, and, and stapled at home, wow. these little comics that most people will look at and be like, Oh, it's just something that somebody made, you know, in their house. And they don't necessarily look great, but some people just, there's like a whole zine, like scene, the thing, a bunch of people that just really, really love those. Cause there's such a clear window into these people's, you know, minds and souls. And I, I just couldn't believe the creativity I was seeing and, and that, I, that I have yet to see in any other creative field. The fact that no, there's no interference. People just tell the story exactly the way they want to. Sometimes those stories are crazy, like yeah. crazy. Yeah. I, when I, I went to a, a convention called SPX, which is a small press expo in Bethesda, uh, a much beloved, really like small, like this is like, this is where like, DC and Marvel fans give the like the other comic fans swirlies like it's just like like so nerd like wow. so it's like so like subculture that yeah. you like underground underground comics and some of the stuff you're seeing is just blowing your mind and some of the art doesn't look great but some of the art looks super great but also incredibly unusual like stuff that you would never see in a something that big companies might not invest in yeah uh, comics about um being homeless comics about mm. uh having mm. your first period uh <laughs> co- comics yeah. about um being addicted to prostitution comics about jesus what's another one um this crazy fever dream stuff that i don't even know how yeah. to explain yeah. you know like art that's just blowing your mind um I just love that you can just do anything in comics in the way that you can't when you have to bring in like investors or these big groups of people. So yeah, because of that, because of the counterculture, because this, the subculture underground nature of, of some comic books, uh, it's just this breeding ground for just unbridled creativity. So it is inherently collaborative because you do need, like rarely is somebody doing all this themselves, right? I mean, usually you do need somebody else to buy into the vision somewhat or to be able to at least like, you got to be able to tell your artist, Hey, dude, this is yeah. what I'm going for a little bit. Right. Well, that's funny. Cause I, 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 yeah, from your perspective, it sounds like I'm kind of doing some double talk. Cause for me as a writer, I, I was a pretty like not screwing around artist as a kid. I was pretty good, but for a kid, I mean, I wouldn't, right. I would never draw my stuff now. Um, for one thing, I've lost all my chops. I've, you know, I've been doing other stuff. So now I, you know, draw poorly, but 
<clears throat> even if that were not the case, you know, I want to write Superman. I want to write Alien. I want to write like big stories are going to be read by a lot of people. I also want to tell my own creator own books that, um, you know, that are my own personal stories, but I'm, I'm looking to do stuff on a, on a, a bigger level, get some prominence and um, reach as many people as I can. Um, but there are certainly people who do it all themselves. Like I cannot do every, like I, I, I have enough awareness of my limitations that I cannot do a whole comic on my own. It would, it would not look good. I don't have the skills sure. as, a, as a penciler anymore, but then it, there's also the coloring. There's also the lettering. There's the production and the printing and everything else. Um, and I'm not in a place to do all that, but there are people who do the entire thing themselves. Um, certainly the people I'm talking about in the zine community, right? Like those people are definitely making it all themselves. And when I first, again, I'm, I'm coming at this, I'm, I'm getting into comics with my brother years ago and, um, you know, having learned to love comics through stuff like Batman, Superman, Spider-Man sure. team ups, uh, you know, the, the precursor to, to, to DuckTales, like the, huh, yeah. you know, big, like that was another, I had these three stacks of comics, like the DC stuff, Marvel stuff, and the kind of cartoony ones like uh, Beagle Boys and Huey, Dewey, Louie and, you know, Scrooge yeah. McDuck and all that. Yeah. Um, that's where I learned to love comics. I didn't know about the underground stuff until much later. So when I'm, when I'm going to SPX and I'm seeing like a book called Heart of Vagrant <laughs> or, uh, yeah. or a book called uh, Paying for It. Uh, story of my addiction to whatever. Um, some of the stuff I'm looking at it through the lens of a Batman fan, X-Men fan from the nineties. And I'm like, well, this all looks like shit. I huh. mean, this is, this is just somebody just drawing in pencil on their, you know, on their desk at home and just photocopy like Xeroxing stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's like, this just looks like trash. Yeah. Um, but it's its own style and you really develop um, a taste for it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's its own thing. And it's just, it's people just desperate to tell their own story, just loving it and not caring about anything else and just putting out these stories that they're extremely proud of. And yeah, they didn't go to art school necessarily. Right. And they, um, it might not be something that you're going to see at Barnes and Noble, but it's, but they're telling stories in some cases that are kind of addictive and really compelling. So what, what, I, I guess <laughs> there's so many threads to, to chase down on this, but I, I think one of the first things that jumps out is for you, what captures your eye? Is it the art first or is it the story first? Do you have to get the hook? Do you have to go, hey, this, just the the, the elevator pitch of this story is what grabbed me. You had me at paying for sex. Like, okay, cool. But now I'll, I can judge everything else and put it in its place. Or is it really the visual? Is it seeing the art first? Um, it really is the marriage of both. Like, I, I'm sorry, that's not a probably an answer you wanted, but it's, um, it's the truth. I, I the ideal stuff, like the stuff that really um, speaks to me clearest is certainly looks good. It has to be, it has to look good, but there's also, you can kind of tell when it's been written to the artist's strengths and ideally mm -hmm. not, not overwritten when it's really um, concise and clear. There's this amazing book called we three. It's just W E three, all one word by, Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly. That's probably the clearest example of this I can think of where the first, I want to say the first page, maybe I can't remember if it's the first page or the first three pages, but it's all, it's, it's all visual at first. Mm -hmm. You see this, you see this guy on a treadmill in his house 
there's no words. You just see this guy running like these tiny little, like kind of zoomed in shots of the treadmill or the back of the guy's head while he's running. You can just you can tell what's happening, but then you also see the zoomed in shot of like the grate and it's like the the air return vent mm-hmm. in his in his in his room or whatever. And um, and there's something in there. You see like a couple of lights uh, in the thing, and then the the, the page turn after the page turn to like the even number page. It's like this two this double page spread of the guy just getting obliterated by gunfire. And you're like, what's happening? I mean, he's like disintegrating. Wow. And the art looks so unbelievable. And then you see what comes out of the grate. And it's like these little, these three little animals, like a a cat, a dog, and a rabbit that have these crazy like cyborg enhancements and guns hanging off of them and all that. They're like a, a hit squad. And they're, you know, they're being controlled to a degree, but they're also being, like, they have some degree of awareness and all that, and they're making their own decisions, but they're, it's this crazy idea. And there's like no words in any of that. Yeah. But a writer did choreograph that whole thing. And later there is right. Of course there are words later and you see there's a sure. very, dis, there is a very distinct fun way that the animals um, um, cor- um, communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like he didn't write any words in the book, but that was such a, an insanely concise and uh, clever way to get mm-hmm. me to buy in. I'm like, what's happening? And part of that yeah. is because the artist is just a friggin' virtuoso. The yeah. art is as good as it's ever been. Those guys together went on to do an X-Men title that was extremely well-received. And then all-star Superman, which is arguably the best Superman run of all time. And the first time that I, to my knowledge, first time they worked together was on We three. So that, that story really spoke to me. And it was if either, you know, I've I've seen I've read a ton of Grant Morrison's work. There are other Grant Morrison and he and I, I should speak carefully because he, they and I are, are friends now. <laughs> and we we talk, we and I talked a lot about my Superman stuff. His he wrote a miniseries that led into my Superman run. Um wow. but um I've read other Grant books that I liked less. And part of it was just the the collaboration just didn't feel as as organic. And um it's not so much. I like the writing, but the art sucked or, Hey, this art is great, but the writing sucked. It's it really, there's like this, this magic chemistry that happens when two characters just, sorry, with two like creators really just fit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So for when you're writing as a comic book writer, is it like a movie script? Are you writing or are you basically, cause you're not just writing the dialogue when you're a comic book writer, right? You're in charge of the entire narrative. So you should be yeah. kind of scripting everything, right? It looks very much like a screenplay. Okay. Um, the format is a little more like comic formats right now are kind of the wild west where there's no, there's no set way that, it, that it, it only works this way. And if you, if you divest, if you diverge from this and the hell with you, that's how like, if, if anyone listening has ever read or written a screenplay, they know what I'm talking about. Because if you, um, <laughs> if you write the dialogue in a screenplay and you, don't center it if you like yeah. left justified or whatever it's like yeah you know faux pas yeah. you were sent to the you know the flames of perdition it's like a yeah. huge thing like what are you doing everyone yeah. knows this is how it's done in, in comics there's nothing like that if you if you decide not to write in courier fonts or if you you know don't indent your dialogue or whatever it's whatever i write in the way that i find is the clearest for my for my uh artists generally and usually I'll, I'll uh, when there's time, I'll, I'll reach out to them first and be like, yo, like, how do you like to see scripts? How do you, 
do you like more direction, less direction? Um, how does this format look? Especially if we're going to be working together more than just one more than just one issue, we'll kind of sort all that out so I can see how they like to work best. Um, because some people will prefer more or less direction, or they. Um, um, what's another thing that I sometimes get asked? Um, a new a new page of art always begins at the top page of a of the Word doc. Like I, I always insert a page mm. break insert a page break for every page so that you're not like having to comb through everything. It's not like one continuous gotcha. stream of consciousness thing. Gotcha. Yeah. You just want to make it as easy as possible because very often the artists will also be printing these things off at home and having them on their on their table. Uh, I need to keep that in mind. Um, sometimes they'll go through and take out a lot of shit. Like they'll, I found out later that they'll uh, um, they'll go through and take everything that they regard as unnecessary um, and just delete it from the document before they they print it. <laughs> so I, you know, yeah, I just try so you to keep it as a word doc, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Sending, <laughs> yeah, sending yeah. a PDF, the fucking world. Yeah. I'm getting stressed just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Like it's gotta be a word doc that they can edit. Otherwise, yeah. yeah what are you doing? Um, so it's, it's kind of funny. Cause it's a lot. I see, I'm starting to see other similarities between that and your music career, because in both cases, um, maybe not with the army band, but just in music in general, there's not necessarily a set position that is making all the creative decisions and is the final say, right? If this is all collaborative where you guys have to sync up and it's kind of internal decision-making, but there's no external force that's coming. There's no director of the movie. There's no. Um, well, that depends on the book. Oh, really? Um, okay. Actually there, there are very often directors. Yeah. So okay. actually this, so that'll be an interesting part of this to listen to. So um when we're doing a creator owned thing, like it was just us and we don't even have a publisher yet. Yeah. So it's, it's just us making our thing together. Um, and there's nobody telling us what to do when we're at, like when I'm doing Superman say, um, there's an editor that is making executive decisions. Now, I mean, I have a really great relationship with my editor, Paul on those books, and he doesn't really tell me what to do. He will give me feedback sometimes. Uh, he'll be like, hey, what do you think about this? The only part of the script that isn't working is this. Like, what do you think about changing the perspective to blah, blah, blah? And we'll kind of talk through stuff and I might make a change. Um, and I do give notes to my artists sometimes. Like, hey, we need to see so-and-so. But I, I also try to, <clears throat> I try to chase that with, um, Okay, so let me explain this. So I, I sent, actually, no, let me back up. I'm getting off track. So I'll, yeah, so the notes come from the editor in that case. And ideally, the artist and I will have notes for each other, but it's, it's always in a collaborative, in a collaborative spirit, not like, you know, yeah. you, screw, you screw me, do this instead. Right. Um, with Alien and Bond, those are licensed books. Now, I mean, technically, even, even Superman is licensed because it's a DC property, not my own. Right. But but Alien and Bond are unique because um, they're licensed even from another company. Because I mean, I you know, Dynamite Dynamite uh, Entertainment has to have the license to do Bond comics from the Ian Fleming estate. So, and um, for Alien, we they have to have the license from 20th Century Studios, what used to be Fox. Um, so most of my notes 
Um, I so I I do get notes or feedback from editors from like Marvel editors and Dynamite editors for mm-hmm. Alien and Bond respectively, but most of the the big notes come from the licensors. Meaning there's like they're like brand production people gotcha. at at 20th Century, and they're yep. like make it more like the movie or whatever you know gotcha. that I get that I get from them and the Bond people too. They're like make it more like the books. So I, I get notes from those guys. And they, they're, I mean, they own the property. So, and honestly, they're not in the, they're not always creative types. And so their notes tend to be more frustrating. <laughs> yeah. I imagine. Uh, yeah. Um, sometimes like there was a, God, what's an example of a funny note I got. Um, so they, the tricky thing about doing alien is that you're always trying to re this is just my perspective. Nobody gave me a, a, a Bible on how to write Alien. I just love Alien, and I know those movies really well. Um, the tricky thing about Alien is that you're always trying to capture that same horrific poop your pants magic of that first movie where the dinner scene. I can't even imagine seeing that for the first time now because I've seen it so many times, and I just know – even someone who hasn't seen it forever knows what's yeah. coming because yeah. it's just such a huge part of our pop culture now. Yeah. Um, that movie just blows your mind over and over and over and over again. Like seeing the derelict, that ship, seeing the space jockey inside, you're like, Jesus, that thing's huge. Like, what am I looking at? Uh, Seeing those, those eggs and then one opens and then there's something on the guy's face. And then the dinner scene. And like, we see the, now it's 10 feet tall. (laughs) Like, yeah, you know, everyone's just like freaking out all the time. You just, you're in these emotional car crashes one after the next. This is incredible. You're trying to recapture that. But everyone's already seen it now. Yeah. So what do you do? So you can't, You have to push it forward. You have to do new things. But you, you also can't just jump the shark and do something insane because uh, it still has to feel like Alien. Um, so it's tricky. It's like the, I so basically to me, I've, I've kind of been trying to push the the life cycle alien stuff forward, just like like baby steps. Yeah. So like so we're, see, we're seeing new things that are super duper gross the way Giger's art was that made that first one so gross and just invasive feeling and just, you know, upsetting kind of that rapey kind of quality to how the, the monsters work um, without breaking the lore. And very often I'll get notes back from a, from uh 20th century, like, man, it's not like the movie uh, in the, in the first issue, because they just, they just want it to look just like the movie, but then the magic's gone because everyone right. knows what's coming. You know, they right. can't just you can't just right. watch a chest chest burster over and over and over again because right. no one's going to give a shit. Right. Right. So in that in that first uh, that first episode uh, issue of Marvel's Alien comic, uh, there was there's a flashback where the main character the whole thing is told from the perspective of a whale yutani company man um, who was like himself uh, basically a mercenary that worked for whale yutani like the Marines that we see in the second movie, but not government marines they're like right company company marines basically so he's one of those guys and um you see the flashback where he first saw the aliens and there's a guy hanging from the ceiling by his feet and um he's got a face hugger on his face and another one on his crotch and one on his ass too and the studio was like no we can't do this and like it's supposed to be upsetting and you're like, yeah, but this is really upsetting. Plus, this is it's called a face hugger. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, if you read the the journal entries from David from from Alien Covenant, you'll find that because I I I went through the the Blu-ray and watched all that crap. You, you see, oh have you seen that movie? Yeah, yeah, sure. So so there's a journal. David's got like the the synth has got those journal pages that he like his 
diary basically of his time on this planet, like messing with life on the planet. And you can read all that stuff. Uh, so in the ex in the extras, I went through and read all that stuff, and he t- he talks about a like a, a forerunner to the facehugger, like a, a life form that he found there that had been come from the accelerant and all that. And when he found it, I can't remember if he actually if he bred it or if he found it first. I think he found the like the proto version of it, and uh, it it uh, attacked him and it ran up his leg. It, it's, he describes how it was kind of confused by the lack of orifices that David has because he's an Android. I was like, okay, sweet. So, and so I, uh, so I you know it's got to go for orifices. Yeah. 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 I was like, yeah. they port in a storm. Like it's not like they're not only going for humans, they're going for whatever's around and then not everything has a face, you know, I think you should be able to take any complex organism. So if what we you know, what if it's, whatever, a crab or something. No, it's just hilarious that you're, you have to do research and you're diving into explaining to the studio. Yeah. The whole history. Like, here's my justifications for this, 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 and this creative. Yeah. Design. Like that's, yeah. that's the one that always jumps to my mind. And the, and the one where I had to use uh, the movies as a, cause they just are all about protecting their brand and making your, keeping everything the same. They're all about like, no, 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 keep it the same, keep it the same, keep it the same. Sure. And I get it, but um, they, I don't think they understand how we have to, we're trying to get emotional investment right. in from the reader. So we have to do these gross things to, yeah, yeah, we have yeah. to push forward in some way. There was another, in the second arc, there was a, they're on a planet that they've terraformed and there was already alien life on that planet. And as they're terraforming it, all the oxygen in the atmosphere is, is like a killing stuff. And there's this thing that's like a, almost like a furry, a furry snake, but, but, but like cuter. I don't know. It's like the thing that they, that, that the people there called tubers, that are kind of slowly dying out and the aliens get a hold of one of those things and makes a new kind of xenomorph that's based on like this, this limbless thing. And it's, God, it's gross. And again, I got pushed back, like, nope, too much. And I was like, look, I need you to, I, wow. I, that was another hill I was willing to die on. It's like, we got to keep the tuber morphs because they're super gross. And it shows us a new invasive thing. That's going to get a, get emotional response from people that we need in these books. Have you ever walked away from a project? Um, not yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Sorry, not to jinx you. But yeah, no, yeah, I got you. yeah. No, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the, in the middle of thing I just said yes to, I've, I've definitely said yes. Uh, I've said no to stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I've turned down a, a lot of books, but I have not. Um, I don't think I've, let me think, have I? I don't I mean, because so. they know who you are at this point. You're getting, you, they're soliciting you. So they kind of know what they're getting into when they, offer you projects. I hope now, so. Don't they? Yeah. I, there was a, there was a, there was a conversation recently where a character made a decision that I felt strongly needed to happen and was in character and was kind of the cost of doing business when I came onto the book. And now they're like, no, no, I can't do this. I'm like, dude, this was in the the very first pitch, you know, the, the huh. one paragraph pitch thing that yeah. put, was in there and you said yes. And it was in the one pager. It was in the script. It's in the script revision. So this is too late. You know, like this has got to yeah. be in here. Yeah. So I kind of stood my ground on that one too. Um, if they had, if they had said no to that, I might've walked Okay. Um, at this point. Cause man, I'm just, I'm so busy, dude. Like, it's not that I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to big time anybody. It's just like, I, if this, if I'm, if I think the book is not going to be what I want it to be at this point, I got to, you know, just protect my time and and not, not spend, triage, not yeah. spend, not spend a massive amount of time doing a book. That's not going to turn out good. So at this, when, do, how do you get jobs now? Do people, does DC or Marvel approach you or does, do the, 
like in the bond case, do the license holders approach you? How, how do you get approached to do work now? Uh, usually an editor will reach out. The editor okay. often has, has some control over what the book is going to be. Like they, they will put together the creative team. Okay. Um, in the case of Alien, I, I asked them about that, and I never do that because uh, I love Alien. And when I found out, I saw the same announcement as everyone else because uh, Dark Horse had the license to Alien Forever, and they made those Alien comics, and um, and they were great. But they were also, I felt like they had strayed super far from the movies. They didn't feel like the mm-hmm. films anymore. They were kind of their own thing, which I really enjoyed. But they were not the same as the movies. Sure. And then at some point, Marvel got the license to do them. And when I saw that, dude, I saw, I saw it on I saw it on IGN. What you know, next to everyone, I didn't know that that was happening. I saw this incredible artwork by like David Finch showing um, like Predator holding up Iron Man's head and like a, an, a, a Xenomorph walking through Guardianship. And I, I just like, I did a straight up like Chuck Liddell, like, I can't, <laughs> I can't wait to see this dude. And uh, I reached out to the, I emailed my Marvel zombies editor that moment. Like, dude, you've got to give me an alien book. Like I Ask me anything right now. Like I'm the biggest yeah. alien fan you ever heard of. Like I, I've been running, <laughs> I've, I've been training my whole life for a race. I didn't know was coming. <laughs> and, um, and they straight up did like the Homer, the bushes, like, like take it easy. Like, <laughs> but it's like, but they, but he said like, wow, man, that actually might be a really good fit. And I found out later that there was actually somebody in like, I think probably a talent guy uh, at Marvel. Somebody was, was pitching for me in the office to do that book anyway, which I didn't oh, cool. know. Oh, cool. So when I kicked, when I kicked in the door with a shotgun, um, <laughs> they, they they took note and then they did this yeah. kind of they, they did like a bake off. I, uh, I never I never found out who else sent in the script, but they they wanted to see a treatment like a pitch from me, like what would you do with an alien book? Sure. And I got the impression that others were getting the same offer. Um, I don't know who else sent in for it or what happened, but I ended up getting it. Um, so usually it's the editor, whoever is assigned that book the editor that's assigned to it will reach out to me like, Hey, how do you feel about this thing? Um, at some point I have friends like super big name people um, who, who still pitch projects that they want to do um, right now. I don't do that because I, I don't, I'm just reacting and you know? I'm just yeah, so, yeah. so unbelievably busy. Um, I just kind of wait for stuff to come along. And if I have space for it, I'll, I'll do it. There was a, um, a dynamite editor, Nate Cosby reached out to me about doing a red Sonia story. And it was just a, like a 10 pager and I can knock out a 10 pager quick. So I was like, yeah, dude, I'll do that. This is for a, an anthology that they did called black, white, and red, where mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's kind of this gimmicky thing that a lot of different uh, books are doing right now where they'll, if it's the character that suits that kind of thing, like daredevil or red Sonia, or I can't remember if there was a Punisher one, but there was, uh, there was a Wolverine one that was very successful. Mm where you see just black and white with like, and blood everywhere, you know? Oh yeah. 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 You know, gotcha. so, you know, so red Sonia makes all the sense. And um, I was like, yeah, can we use Steve beach? This is my, my friend from yeah, the lost boys, the Ebo Bremen. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't know who that is. Like, yeah, well you're about to, and you're going to shit your pants. Like he's wow. so unbelievably good. And the, the, he was like, uh, yeah, you're right. This guy's amazing. Let's use this guy. He's a little slow, but man, is he amazing. So we did a 10 page uh, red Sonia story. And that went it turned out so great, and we had a great experience doing it. And uh, after it was over, Nate offered me a couple other licensed things, like Dylan Dog and something else. I can't remember what the other one was. That I was like, I'm sorry, man. I'm just, I'm just trying to, re- I'm just trying to make it to air. You know, I just, I'm, I don't have time to do it. 
Yeah. And, it's, and he offered me something else that had to say no. And at some point he's like, what about James Bond? It's like, we're going to, we're going to do James Bond and it'll be like a relaunch, like James Bond number one. Wow. All you. Wow. I was like, let me think about it. (laughs) I know. Let me think about it. Because I honestly, I, I did like, I'm not the biggest Bond fan in the world. Like I, I enjoy the movies, but I'm not like, and I've read some of the books, but I was never like, I don't have like posters of them on my wall or anything. Honestly, part of that is that there's stuff I want to see from a Bond story that we never get. Like we, if if Bond is a spy, he's the worst ever. Yeah, (laughs) you know he's not really a spy; he's like a special agent. Um, And I kind of want to see some spycraft. I want to see some John Le Carre style like stuff in there, and see him actually being a spy. I want to see one that's kind of more in the shadows. We still got to have all the cool stuff and the women and all that, but it's there's a way to do it, in my opinion. That's not like bad guys to volcanoes. A hundred percent. Well, and that actually makes me wonder, you know, we talked about the the comic book world and the, and the particular culture that you find there. How has that culture received you and how much has being an active duty army soldier contributed to some of those opportunities that they might trust you a bit more to go? Yeah. Bond, like you don't have to be the biggest fan because there's a little bit of weight of credibility because they kind of putting you in the military industrial complex you know, just as a person to begin with, does that help? Does that hurt? Is it irrelevant? What have you found? Uh, being a soldier. Yeah. Um, it has both helped and hurt. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. There's well, when I got my first call at Marvel, so I did my first printed book, <coughs> excuse me, was, um, last sons of America. And it was a story about human trafficking and the for profit adoption industry, but it's like, it had this high concept gently sci-fi thing but basically about human trafficking um which led to warlords of appalachia also at boom studios those books got noticed at dc and marvel uh warlords of appalachia there's the talent guy at marvel ricky purton who's a great dude um has ties to to kentucky i believe but the appalachian mountains for sure and he read that book and loved it and um and he was slinging it around the Marvel office, like to all the editors, like, yo, you got to read this. So people kind of have these, these folders where they like they're too read pile by people. They don't mm-hmm. know yet. Mm-hmm. And that book was making it into people's folders. Um, and Ricky knew that I was active duty, which is extremely unusual. I'm not going to say unique. I think there were there when I first got in, there were a couple other guys, I think that were doing it. I can't remember if they were still active duty or if they were recently out, but like, Somebody was somebody was writing a GI Joe book IDW that was that had been Army. There was I mean there was an America's Army comic, you know that was like the the comic version of that old game that we got back in the day. Oh, wow, do you know about that? You remember the game? The yeah, CD I remember the thing? game, but but I didn't know there was a comic. And but that doesn't surprise me because that's I mean yeah, I hate to use the word it's almost propaganda propagandistic. I mean, compl- yeah. yeah, totally, yeah. The marketing tool. Right? Yeah, yeah. And there so there were a couple of uh, soldiers out there doing it, but. Um, I didn't know those guys um, at the time. Like now I think I'm, I'm the only active guy doing, doing stuff at the main publishers right now that to my knowledge. Um, and at some point Marvel was, let's see, they were doing these tribute comics to their old books. Like there were these old titles back in the day. This is the 80th anniversary of quote unquote Marvel. You know, I think initially mm-hmm. it was called something else. Um, they had these old titles like, Tales to Astonish or Strange Tales or yeah. War is Hell is one of them. 
So there's this old war book called War as Hell, and they want to do a, an 80th anniversary tribute to War as Hell. There's this guy, uh, famous, beloved, and sometimes controversial comic writer and artist named Howard Shaken. And they wanted to um, they wanted Shaken to do a 10-pager and, and for me to do a 10-pager. And I'm sure they pitched it. I'm sure Ricky pitched me like, this guy's in the army right now. We should get the soldier. Like, I was just a token soldier, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, I was like, whatever, I'll do it. And when, so when they reached out, like, Hey, would you want to do a thing? It's the, it's just a 10 page war story. And I didn't expect a Marvel book to not be a licensed character. I figured it'd be like, you know, Punisher or something. Right. Uh, but it was this, it was this random thing. It's like, tell any kind of war story you want. 10 pages. Huh. I was like, I mean, yeah, dude, I'm not going to say no. I figured shaking like wiped the floor with me. Cause he's this old seasoned pro, but we ended up telling two very different stories. Um, Shaken did one about basically about the death of Glenn Miller, about like uh, Germans and Americans listening to big band music as they fought and about Miller's plane going down. And I told one from a store from a, a guy that I knew uh, who has since passed, actually, about uh, this ranger who um, was going on night raids in Iraq, going like this kicking indoors and shooting mm-hmm. dudes in their, in their sleep. Like that was his day to day, like day in, day out job. And it was hard on him. Um, that was a story about him. It basically tells the story of PTSD as like from the perspective, like making PTSD into like this, like an African folktale about like a, mm. a demon that passes from person mm. to person through their blood, like a contagious, mm. a contagious demon. The book's called War Devil. So PTSD it describes PTSD as a thing, that, a contagious thing that passes through blood in combat. Wow. And a story that, cool. wow. that mattered a lot to me. I'll get you a PDF. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's a story that mattered a lot to me. And I'm really glad I got the shot. I didn't know if I was ever going to get another Marvel shot. So I wanted to make it count. Like, this is a story I want to tell. Um, so in that regard, it was helpful because it kind of got my foot in the door uh, at, at Marvel. Um, and it was probably a factor when they reached out to me about Captain America, too. I did a Captain America miniseries. And and it was it was a very specific mission statement for that book um it was a, it was a tie-in to a big event the event was called mm. empire with a y that al ewing was writing about an alien invasion very comic-y thing but there was um like while the fantastic four and the avengers and x-men are doing their thing they wanted cap to be on his own like kind of rallying the armies of earth and leading them against the katati threat this alien threat um just three issues so here's here's where Cap starts, and here's where he's got to be by the end. And it was all very in a box, you know. Okay. But I was like, yeah, dude, I'm not gonna say no to Cap. I love Cap, so I did it. And the internet kind of lit me up a little bit because, like, they, I mean, uh, comics has a very counterculture kind of kind of yeah. feel to it very often, um, and very often very anti-authoritative and mm-hmm. and i mean i could see like reading the book i said um <clears throat> when we were kind of putting together what the book was going to be i was like um cool we'll we'll have we'll bring shield into it too and they're like actually shield is not around right now like shield's dead in mm-hmm. the comics currently like oh okay i was like well i will do i'll put together like a a new version of the howling commandos like the old like sergeant fury and dum dum do and yeah. all those guys using modern day american soldiers they're like, cool, that sounds perfect. So I did that. I put together a team using the names of people I knew from work. Um, put together um, a team of American soldiers just in, in, in you know, um, you know, OCP uh, working with Cap. 
and and they they would kind of you know sometimes they'd kind of get some war stories out of Cap at the old days, and you get to see them interact with Cap, who's you know the perfect soldier of generations ago. So he's kind of got this old this um like almost hokey way like old man kind of way of talking that I really enjoy. Um, and it was really fun, but people read it as army propaganda, knowing the source. And when I got the call to do both the Superman and action comics title, they got real nervous. And there was all this noise about like, man, this American soldier is going to be um, just making Superman into a recruiting poster. And because I mean, the only thing that a lot of them had known, like by far my biggest, my most prominent book before that. Well, I mean, Marvel zombies was big, but um, the Captain America thing was probably the biggest thing I'd been known for. And um, the fact that it was all rah-rah army kind of made people nervous. And, to even now, people there there are people that reach out. I mean, I've established that the Superman book is not about Army. There's it's not right. It's its own thing. It has nothing to do with me. Um, but still, some people will still just you know see a soldier, especially now, knowing everything that's happening, and just kind of go like you know f you cop, <laughs> you know like they just they just see me as. Um, a representation of this thing that they don't trust. And part of that also is, you know, Portland, Portland is like comics Mecca, Portland, Oregon. Oh, really? Is a oh, huge wow. comics town. I like yeah. half the people I know in comics live in Portland. Wow. Um, and that town got lit up towards the end of, of, of Trump's time. And they were wearing, they were wearing U S army uniforms and they were not army, <clears throat> but they just, you know, you see a picture on Twitter you see guys in OCP, like full battle rattle, like tear gas and crowds. And um, I caused some flack for that because they just they they associate me with with those guys. Like, I think he was bringing up like Border Border Patrol or something. Um, but, uh, you know, people got hurt, man. And it, it was so, yeah, there's definitely a, a contingent of of the comics community online that is mistrustful because I'm army. But. It's at this point, it is a relatively small percentage. Uh, like they, I've I've been on the book long. I've been on Superman long enough, and Alien, and, and other stuff that they they know my voice as a writer. Um, they know that they, in my opinion, my heart's in the right place, and I'm mo- I've won over most of my critics at this point. Have you ever felt? Uh, I mean, this. I don't know if this is something that anyone is self aware enough to know, but have you ever felt yourself <clears throat> having to compromise? yourself in any way to either in either respect either to please a licensor or to please an audience um just because of the nature where you find yourself that you do wear a couple of different hats you have your own identity you have your own belief system um and as an art any artist goes through those moments of am i compromising or am i not but with you you know you you have some very clear markers um that make you a target for one side or another do you ever find yourself in the, in that position or is that just kind of. Fortunately, fortunately, no, I am. Okay, um, good. I have, I've been so far. I've not had to do that. I am. Um, I mean, if they, <clears throat> if I had, a, if I got a mandate from, from a, a publisher, like the bad guy in the story is going to be the U S army. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I'd be like, I'm not the guy to tell the story. Right. Um, there was, I did get offered. A, a team book in which the lead character was going to be U.S. agent, and I said no, uh, in part because of how the readership had responded to Cap, but also because U.S. agent is like this this tarnished version of Cap, and the fact that the show had just come out and he was this 
American soldier who put on the cap uniform, who kind of hadn't earned it, was doing his best, but not doing great work, ends up murdering a guy. Um, it was like what U.S. agent represented to the pop culture, to like the general populace at that moment. I was like, I don't think this is a good idea. And I, I got the call 100 percent because I'm the token soldier still. And I was like, I don't think this is a good idea, man. I think you should get somebody else for this book. Um, we're going to draw all kinds of flack because some people are going to be, some people are going to think, going to think I sympathize with U.S. agent that he's my my mouthpiece right. or whatever. Sure. People people sure. will put their whatever. They will sign their own truth to to yep. it. Yep. No, that's fair. Let's talk a little bit um, just about the warrior path that you went on. Obviously, I mean, your heart has been wired for art it seems like from a very early age why'd you join the army in the first place um i really like the idea of of playing playing my horn of making things for higher purpose you know it's not mm. just not just because i love it not just because i'm good at it or because they pay me to do it um but do something that matters with it you know i mean i love playing Mahler and and wagner and you know Berlioz. But um, I mean, those, that's that's got that's a, a storytelling type gig, and I love it. I love playing that stuff. But um, I also really love, you know, giving thank yous to veterans who deserve it. Like we're playing, we still play real lit on these concerts. We're on this upcoming tour that we're about to do in a couple of weeks. Um, we're playing um, a piece called Nimrod that uh, is really beautiful, and it's it's instrumental, and it's. Um, it's accompanied by someone reciting the poem Flanders Fields. Oh, wow. And damn, is it beautiful. I mean, it's just, I love doing, that's like one of my favorite things we've done in this band. I'm really glad we're doing it again. It's been a few years since the last time we did this, this, um, <clears throat> this got that combination. And it's so powerful, man. People are going to be crying their wow. faces off. And that's a terrible name for the song though. Is it Nimrod? Did I hear that yeah. right? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's an old, yeah. let me find <laughs> Actually, I'm curious about the the source. Let's see. I mean, it's it's a character, right? Um, let's see. There was a character named Nimrod uh, in the Bible who's like a hunter, right? A hunter and king. Wow. Okay. Uh, in the let's see, I'm looking it up here. In Hebrew, it means rebel. I know, like, yeah, we. You know, you and I are used to hearing it as like a, yeah, yeah. It's it's an, one of those names, an that, insult. Yeah, yeah, it does doesn't translate well necessarily, but but the concept, I love that concept, the music and poetry. Oh yeah, forget about it. Yeah, it's a great piece by. Uh, it's a it's a movement from Enigma Variations by Edward Elgar. Okay, um, and it's just an incredible piece. Um, I'm, it's uh, originally written for orchestra, I believe, but there's also there's also a really great choral version. So for us, obviously, it's for bands, but it's it's a beautiful transcription, and um, it just fits so well with with Flanders Fields. Even like the rises and falls in the in the narrative and the music mm. fit together so well, and it's just mm. I, I I tear up on stage playing it. I love it. Um, so I mean, to me, that playing that piece with that poetry for um, you know, old veterans who, or their loved ones who may not know either work. Sure. Um, and seeing their reaction and just seeing them finally like go home, feeling more patriotic, feeling like they can trust us, mm. feel, feeling like America's still worth defending. 
man, it's, it's a rough time right now. I mean, like there's, there are, there are a lot of parties out there that, you know, in whose interest it is to divide us and keep us fighting and keep us hating each other. And, um, I hate that. I don't know. It's really frustrating. It's frustrating that, uh, you know, that affects how, how my, my own family and I talk and it's just total drag. Um, but this is a way that we can, like, I can go play these concerts and, and give them people, give, you know, tell them stories about people that are in our service right now that, that all of them can and should be proud of Yeah. yeah. and, uh, let them go home, feel a little better about their, about their nation, you know? So Which, it's, it's, it has, it's higher, higher purpose. To answer your question, it's, yeah. It's uh, gives me an opportunity to play music for higher purpose and not just because it's fun. Absolutely. Do you think you would have enlisted had the wars not been going on? Did you enlist? Cause you enlisted after, right? <clears throat> if I'm right. I enlisted in. Oh, five. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I would have. So if this was the, um, if it had been the early nineties, mid nineties, you, you would have enlisted anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was actually looking at before I decided to go all in on music, like in high school, I was looking at military anyway. And I, really? I was, I was super ignorant. I didn't know. I didn't know about all the different MOSs, different things you could do. I was like in the soldier you know, I, in the, in the army, everyone's a, an infantryman basically. I, just, right. I envisioned right. everyone as like, you know, the characters from movies I'd seen, <laughs> you know, like everyone's yeah. in for either, either war movies with John Wayne or like the guys from predator, you know, like, like, right, ever, right, like, right. look at that gear. Oh, and the grenade launcher. Awesome. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I didn't know what being in the army really meant. Man, you could do the army and be a, a doctor or like, right, a, right. you know, an audiologist or whatever. Like it's so many different things. And I had no idea. So I was interested in just, you know, being a warfighter as a kid. Um, and eventually I, I did change focus and went all in on music, but I still never, never lost that. I, that I, that, uh, kind of fascination with the military and for some reason, the army specifically, I don't know why, but the idea of Navy, um, or air forces didn't like, for some reason it was army. I don't know why, but army just spoke to me in a way the others didn't. And I, something, something about the culture that I, I, I cannot really put my finger on. And you also do MMA, right? <laughs> not today, not right now. Cause I'm just, I don't have the bandwidth, but in theory I do. Yes. In theory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have. Well, I, I bring that up only because um, I'm, I'm curious and, and I'm not trying to project anything on you. So I'm kind of more looking for you to set the record straight, but what is it like to be a band member, especially now that you've been in for a long time in an army at war, be physically active, be somebody that does enjoy physically fighting. And be in the band. Does there ever a sense? And again, I'm I'm projecting probably a little bit, or, or just kind of asking a question out of pure ignorance. But is there ever a sense of, boy, I wish I could get in the fight, or I or no, I feel completely satiated in what I'm doing. I know what I bring to the fight, and I see how I'm contributing every day. Like you know as well as I do, like the army's a. The army specifically is such a weird culture because your resume is on your uniform and there's always a bit of dick measuring. There's always looking for tabs and badges and stuff like that. Does that ever rankle you? Does that ever, or do, do you ever have to, are you somebody that's just naturally self-confident and doesn't worry about like how 
oh, I, I go to brag and people are going, oh, where's your beret and where's your this? And you know, and it just doesn't bother you. Like, what do you think of the dick measuring of the, you know, kind of all that stuff that goes into it? Or even forget about the dick measuring just internally, just for yourself. Like, is there a sense of you that's like, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't mind punching some bad dudes in the face once in a while. Um, I don't. So. There's a lot to that question. I know back, there is. Yeah. back in the back in the day, that would have bothered me. It did bother me, but not anymore. I, I, I see the dick measuring happening on every level. So like, <laughs> so yeah, yeah like there's some, um, you know, we're you know we go on tour, and maybe like one of our maybe like one of our drivers who you know is who's a civilian. Back in the day, it was like 88 Mike might make some little some little joke or something, and and he's a driver. Meanwhile, there's, um, you know, I've heard, um, you know, infantry guys make those same jokes about drivers. And I've heard, uh, you know, airborne make those same jokes about legs. And, you know, like rangers make those jokes about airborne. And, right, you know, right. You know, and, and rangers and special forces both think that the other one's, you know, full of shit. And like everyone thinks that they're the shit and that no one else is. <laughs> so yeah. I, I yeah. guess it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Like no matter how, no matter what, if I was just like all in on being a war fighter, there's still going to be some asshole out there that thinks I'm not good enough. So definitely. Not, as, yeah. As far I'm as the worried. dick measuring goes, I can totally see that. Yeah. As far as, yeah. Dick measuring thing. Like that's just part of life. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I don't, you know, whatever I'm doing what I'm, I'm doing what I do and I'm doing do stuff. Those guys can't do. And I'm sure they do stuff that I can't do. So it's fine. Um, as far as wanting to get in the fight and all that, um, there was a, so here's a story <laughs> when I, when I enlisted, so I got through, um, maps and all that took the, took the ASVAB, which I'd never taken. I guess I probably took it in, at the end of high school. Actually. Yeah. When you graduate high school in Kentucky, you're required to take the ASVAB or they, you were at the time, but that was however many years ago. And so I took the, the ASVAB again in 2005 and, um, got through maps. This is when I was, when I was about to take the audition, for the army mm. field band, you have to go mm. through maps before the audition because we well, send in the CD first of your, of your playing. And if you are a semifinalist, if they accept you into the shortlist, then they tell you to go talk to a recruiter, go through maps, make sure you're eligible to be in the army. Cause if you can, you know, if you're, if you play your butt off, but you're an amputee or you're, right, <laughs> you're di- right, right, diabetic right. or a pothead or whatever, you you've got to be able to get through maps still. Sure. Sure. And before they're going to, because if you, if you do make it through maps, they're going to pay for your plane ticket to come up there and play live, but they don't want to waste that money. If you're, if you can't enlist. Yeah. Sure. So you go through maps. I did that. And I was about to, what was it? This might've actually been after, sorry, this might've been after I won the audition. So I did, I did maps, took the audition, won it. And then I went back to a map station, wherever I was at and signed a contract. And the guy, I was about to sign the contract and the guy that like the, the civilian office yeah. dude that was yeah. processing me looked at my stuff and saw that I got a really good, like my, my ASVAB score was like 99% or something. It was really high. Yeah. yeah. And he looked at it and he's about to give me the stuff. He was like, you're going to the fucking band. <laughs> and he was like mad. Really? I was like, well, yeah. And he was like, Man, with this score, you can do fucking anything. Like you could do Intel, you could be an officer, you could be like you got a master's degree. Like, what are you what are you doing? And he's like, I'm not giving you this. I want you to go get lunch and come back here. Think about what you're doing. You could do anything. Like, do something that matters. 
And I did. I, I mean, yeah, that guy was a huge asshole, but I, but I, but I did think about it. I was like, maybe I am making a mistake. Like, is this, and this is after I have gone through, I did like a five-year undergrad, did a couple of years for a master's, you know, I had reached a high level as a player. One, this audition that's like super sought after, you know, people are just like killing each other to get these jobs. Yeah. And it was a job I believed in. And I was, and then I, I started thinking about those days as a high school kid, like looking at the, at the flyers and like, just when I was just going to enlist just to do, you know, Intel or whatever I could do. And I was like, should I do something that's more impactful? Cause I mean, it was Oh five. And I, I mean, we were, we were at war, Yeah, you know, like I was yeah. like, maybe, maybe there's something I can do. That's more that make a real difference in like the world, you know, thought about it for a super long time. And, uh, ultimately decided that my, that I am of the most use as an artist and a storyteller. And I, you know, yeah, I could, I could, you know, bust my butt to completely change all my skills and try to be somebody who could get out there and, and kick indoors and do a different kind of thing. Um, but these are the skills that I had at that time. And I decided that I was, I was of the most use doing what I was doing. And thank God for that, man. Cause I, I mean, yeah. I, I do, I do still think about that decision and like what, how different my life would be if I had gone that other way, you know, I could have, you know, done something else, gone green to gold and just done, done, done this whole other life. But um, actually, and speaking to, to Grady, that guy that I wrote the the Marvel story for um, and knowing what he went through and <clears throat> what his skills are as a human being or were mm. he died. I, yeah. Anyway, he's gone. Um, he um his skills were very different than mine and he did stuff he had this this lack of hesitation this willingness to be like you know do it that i'm not sure i would have um he had these skills not just i'm not talking about physical skills i'm talking about just the just the mindset that those guys mm-hmm. have to be and when they when they go on these raids that he described to me um i think i would have been even more haunted than him um and i i think i would have had a hesitation in me that you just can't have on that gig um, so knowing my limitations, knowing what I'm good at, um, I think I made the right decision, especially man, doing what we do and having that impact on veterans and their families and gold star families and just doing what I do that I, you know, a job that I know I'm, I am really good at and knowing that I believe in that mission, the way that not everyone does, um, you know, we've, we've talked, I've, I've, you know, done a concert, gone back to the hotel and there's a, a gold star, like gold star parents are there. And, um, you know, this was one, this one guy's dad was like, let me buy you a drink. I was like, uh, why don't you let me buy you a drink? <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. and he was like, I'm we're so grateful for you. And, and so, and he, I saw him like pay for, he tried to pay again for me and, and for somebody else too, that was there. And I was like, man, we should be giving you everything that we have, like everything that we are for, for what you've lost. Like I, you know, I can't, we can't begin to thank you enough for the sacrifice your family has made or, or honor you enough for, for what you've done for this nation and what your, what your son gave. And we, I mean, we, we talked for a long time and we sit there and cry together. Yeah. You know, that's a, those are experiences that, that those people need. Like it's a, it's not the same as uh, it's not the same contribution as the the uh, you know the explosive guys or the sure. or the rangers or the snipers or whatever. It's a totally different job. 
but our veterans deserve to be honored. And that's part of, that's a job that people in our, in our army need to do. And that's, that's what I do. And honestly, I'm way better at that than other jobs I might've had. As far as me being an MMA fighter, I, um, right now it's all very theoretical because I'm just trying to keep up with this, my workload, but I, um, that kind of fell apart during COVID mm-hmm. like when, um, cause I, mm-hmm. I was very mindful of COVID trying to not to get my, my kids sick. And, um, I wasn't so much worried about him. Well, I mean, kind of was, but like the thing on that, that kind of kept me up at night more, more than him, like dying from it or, or me dying, you know, we're both in good shape. And I know it's, it's a, it's a dice roll. Like no one knows who's going to get hit hard with right. it. I thought we were probably okay. But I also hear these stories about kids that have like long, like COVID that it's like where they're, they can't be physically active like they used to be and all that stuff. So I was, I was very, very mindful of COVID. So I stopped rolling at that point. I, uh, instead of going to the gym to roll, I would just work a bag at home and I would teach Anders jujitsu and Muay Thai and that kind of stuff. So, um, and right now I'm at, I'm, I'm like 44 and I'm, I'm coming up on 20 in the army. And, um, right now I'm just trying to like, when I do have time to, to be fit, I'm mostly spending it on trying to, on like hypertrophy, like trying to get a little bit bigger, putting on some muscle mass and all that before I am utterly too old to do that. Cause now I'm already at the old where it's harder. Right, um, right. and I want to be able to make some, still build a little bit of mass while it's still possible. And then when I hit 20, I'm going to, I'm going to get back on the mats again when I hit 20 and start to like legit roll again. But until then I'm going to have to just kind of do what I can do. Are you retiring at the end of 20? I don't know that for sure. Right now, I just just from sheer bandwidth, it's yeah. looking like I will probably have to get out at twenty, just because I'm killing myself doing what I'm doing. Um, but we'll see how it goes. I mean, if things are still going as gangbusters in writing as they are now, then yeah, um, I'll probably have to get out. And I honestly, I, I kind of hate to even say that. Like, I still, I really believe in the mission that we're doing in the Army Field Band. <clears throat> I am um, those moments that I I'm talking about with yeah. Gold Star families and just, and just like veterans. Like we've, I played for like medal of honor winners and yeah. guys that just have these crazy stories from, from overseas things that they did that they never thought they could, that they could do. And um, just honoring them is such important work. And I really hate to give it up, but I know other people are going to step up and do it in my place. So do you have outside bands that you play with? Not anymore. <laughs> I, at some yeah, point, yeah, I would, no I would, yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Whenever I got a call, do something, I pretty much turn it down. So I, you, uh, I play only for the army right now. Yeah. So if you were to retire, would you keep up with the music? Would you be able to take on outside projects with bands? I don't know, man. I mean, realistically, I don't know that I would. I, um, I would probably devote all my time. I, I probably still play jazz, I guess, because I, re- I really enjoy the, 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 the uh, creative process in jazz improvisation. Um, uh, there's just more freedom there. And I really like to compose as well. I could like write a lot of jazz and put together a combo and do some playing. Uh, I might do that, but honestly, even, even that, I don't know. Cause I, right now my, um, I want to, I want to get in like killer, killer shape again. I want to be as, as present in my son's life as I can be. I kind of want to take my my writing to the next level. I don't want to I don't want to die mm. having written only comics. You know, I there's I want to do novels and films and stuff too. I mean, there's I've got stuff in development for film and TV, but it's not the same as writing your own screenplay that gets sure. made into a movie. Sure. Um so there's stuff I want to do. I I and this music is a thing 
it's starting to feel less like music at this point in my career. You know, I'm 44. At this point in my career, it's starting to feel less like something I am driven to do or I want to do. Now it's feeling like something like I have done and am doing. Yeah. And uh, and now I'm I've already kind of my focus has slowly shifted from just strictly a trumpet player to a trumpet player and and composer, and now a trumpet player, composer, and writer and other stuff. So I uh, I'm ready to kind of like if 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 one thing was going to go in the next chapter of my life, it would probably be trumpet, I guess. And it it pains me to say that, but I'm just pulled in too many directions right now. Dude, I know you got to go. Um, we got a little, we got a little more time. If you need a little to. more time, I, yeah, I, yeah. Feel, I feel like I open up more cans of worms if we go much longer. Do let's I, do it. I've been, you've been waiting so long to do this. I, well, it's, it's I'm, been a I'm blast, already, man. I'm already I mean, in your debt. So no, no, do, listen, you're not in my debt at all. This is, um, by the way, those so, books work out. God. All right. So yeah, they worked out on your end. They absolutely worked out. They're freaking awesome. We took these great pictures of them and all that. The silent auction site shut the bed. We did not uh, have no, time. To, that's too bad. It's, 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 so what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to try to reset that for. Yeah. Use them another time. You know, another time. Yeah. Um, which is a bummer. Yeah. That was the one thing in the festival that was like, um, that was a complete washout. Uh, everything right. else, you know, let me know when you when you end up doing it, let me know. I said just more, but there'll be more, there'll be more books by then. So I'll Dude, I appreciate it. Of course. I'll definitely get you, some, let you, know get you some James Bond number ones. Oh yeah. Forget about it. That'd be awesome. Um, I, it's, it's funny, you know, it, it, it's weird to see somebody who's juggling so many big things and then start to, and, but then seeing how you're starting to triage it and what you think you can do going forward, what, and I know it's hard to say because I get it when you're sprinting, it's kind of like, Hey, describe all the colors you're seeing as you sprint past things, <laughs> but what turns you on right now? What make, what makes you go, Oh fuck. I cannot wait. I'm salivating to get after X. What is that? Um, as a as a creator, like I'm yeah, making creatively, mm. <laughs> there's a I just got a um, a creator owned book greenlit that I'm really excited to do. That's it's way early. Like the contract's not signed yet, but it's greenlit. Wow. Like we're doing it for sure. Uh, we just got to figure out the details. Um, but it's a story I'm really excited to do. I my last creator owned books I've done. I did a book called Kill a Man an MMA book and, yep. um, and um, the last God, this epic fantasy horror thing. And it's, it's been like a year and change since those books came out. And um, I, I've, I've let myself kind of get distracted is the wrong word. Cause I, I love it when I'm doing on the license stuff, but I've let myself kind of be devoted to the license projects, Superman, mm-hmm. alien bond, um, red Sonia, stuff like that. Uh, Carnage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been great because it's, it's gotten more eyes on my work Sure. and because I legit, <clears throat> I'm still telling story. I'm finding ways to tell stories. I really care about deeply, even in those licensed properties. It's not like I'm just selling my soul to get a, to sell a famous right. book. I'm you know, right. the Superman story is about human trafficking and, um, the carnage story that like the most recent one was about our, the political divisions in our country or mm-hmm. about, about homelessness. And like, there's, there's stuff that I'm, I'm finding ways to tell stories I care about deeply. Um, but this next one that I'm telling, um, is about the way that people kind of, the way COVID kind of changed us and the way that people are reinventing themselves or like they, people who felt powerless before are gradually just kind of using this insane time to be like, 
screw it. I want to do this other thing and just like burning their ships and doing this other thing. Um, I'm using, I'm, I'm using a, um, like a horror noir kind of, kind of story to tell a story about somebody who was, has felt powerless and decides to finally become the person he always wanted to become. And in this, in his case, it's a dangerous man. He's always mm. wanted to, he's always wanted to be a dangerous man. He finds an opening to become that thing. Interesting. And it's really, it's, it's dark, but it's also really like fun and exciting and it's, uh, it's like a power fantasy in the way, like so many of the stories I've told, like whenever I write Superman, Batman, Carnage in a way, James Bond, all those guys are like power fantasy type stories. And this new thing is uh, a story that I own that is also a sort of power fantasy where somebody who's been frustrated by his powerlessness and his futurelessness, like he's in this in this existence that has no future. And then he finds a way forward. And it's not it's not one that people would expect or want for themselves necessarily, but it's what he wants. And it's he's just like no fear. And I'm I'm really excited to tell that story. And where where right now, especially when you are multitasking, where are you getting your inspiration from? Do you have a notebook that you're working off of? Have you just been jotting down ideas for years? Where where are some of these things coming from? I mean, obviously, COVID got it like that's a big writ large subject but when it gets to the personal aspects of the characters and all that where are you drawing your inspiration from what's your what's your constant fuel that you're putting in um when i find myself needing inspiration i will read read or watch um other work that is great and try to be inspired by that other stories but very often it's inspired by kind of by life you often it's, it's never like a a lightning strike like here's the one mm-hmm. thing i'm going to tell sure. a story about it's more like a like multiple ideas and feelings and things will kind of percolate in my mind together and sort of coalesce around this single idea. Um, an example for that would be like last sons of America at the time, my wife and I were having a hard time getting pregnant. I was already kind of, I accepted it wasn't going to happen. And around that same time, like 2010, I think there was a, an earthquake in Haiti that was like this big humanitarian crisis mm-hmm, and sure. uh, family, a lot of people died. A lot of families were busted up and um, because of the lack of infrastructure in, in this particular place, there was a, it was hard for families to find each other. <clears throat> there was like a, a mission group from the U S that went down there ostensibly to get kids who had been orphaned to get them families, but they got busted leaving the country, like basically like trafficking kids, yeah. people that still had families. <clears throat> and um I, at the time I was already doing a lot of anti-human trafficking volunteer work in Baltimore. And I really thought I kind of knew it all about human trafficking, especially sex trafficking, but I did not know much about the for-profit adoption industry. And that kind of sent me down another rabbit hole of finding out how the adoption industry works in other countries, like where kids come from that get adopted later. And, um, and I'd also seen the movie children of men before that. Mm-hmm. Like, like probably by that point, probably a few years earlier, but all these ideas together kind of, kind of gelled into a single idea where I, I saw a world in which Americans couldn't have kids anymore and human trafficking around the world becomes legit. Like basically kids become mm-hmm. like money around the world. Cause now the, the richest country in the world can't have children. Everyone else can. So now we're setting up shop. Basically, these these child retailers are like setting up shop in different countries, buying, bartering, or stealing kids to ship back to the states, and that was kind of the the the, uh, the spark that became Lessons of America. Um, and and you that's didn't notebook any of that. You weren't like this was all just in your head the whole time. You weren't ever like taking a note, like, oh yeah, that's interesting, or 
Anything like um, that? I don't recall, honestly. I um but that's not something you generally do. You don't generally take notes. You're not I, I, I like, do have I'll I'll keep I will jot down if I have a like a single image that kind of pops in my mind, I think is really compelling, or even a title that I think is really mm-hmm. cool, mm-hmm. or a concept for a story like this person is in this situation or something very, mm-hmm. very vague mm-hmm. uh, that I think is interesting enough to be like a hook for a story. I'll write all those things together and it's like a little blur, kind of a just a regurgitative document. And um, and sometimes those different aspects of different things, like whether it be a title and a concept or a couple of different concepts or things will kind of come together and become one more interesting story. So I do notebook, but um, it's all very vague. And um, until suddenly something just kind of, so you know, lightning strikes the key and then yeah. everything, everything kind of makes sense after that. How important is it to have a good ear for dialogue as a comic book writer? Um, in my experience, it's been hugely important because that's, I feel like that's one thing I do very well. That's like my strength is dialogue. I, uh, I really, really like the, the books of Elmore Leonard. Mm. And I think that he writes dialogue about, well, wrote uh, dialogue about as well as anyone. Um, and all he does is just write how people talk. I mean, it's really, to me, it's, it just, it seems easy, honestly. Like all you do is just mimic the way people talk. I love, I just love language. I love English. I love how you can tell where somebody's from or who they are by the way, like the little nuances in their speech. And I love expressing who people are through the way they talk, not just the things they're saying. Um, so to me, it's been hugely important. Um, and I, I'm a, I'm a real um, dialogue snob. Like I put a lot of thought mm. into the dialogue. Do you, is there anything you've ever done to improve your ear, sharpen your ear, go, ah, you know, I don't have the, I don't have the right. um, Yeah. I'm not hearing this guy. I know who it's supposed to be, but I'm not getting him. So I need to go do X, Y, Z to kind of just hear that. And and, and remember that. What do you do? What, what, what kind of things Um, do you do to sharpen? I'll, I'll take in stories that kind of emulate who that character is. So like if, um, <clears throat> if it's uh if it's British dialogue mm-hmm. of, of a specific like region of England or wherever, um, I'll watch a show that I think really nails that kind of that kind of flavor. Mm-hmm. Like if it's okay. a Guy Ritchie type thing, or if it's mm-hmm. more of a like a you know if it's a teenager or somebody from Liverpool versus London versus wherever, I'll try to watch stuff that um, <clears throat> that you know exemplifies what that is. And gotcha. same thing if it's if it's uh, you know deep south, I mean a certain region of deep, like whether it's Alabama versus Tennessee versus mm-hmm. Texas, like I, I want to watch something that kind of that I feel like nails that thing. Um, sometimes it's if it's a comic book character that's well established, I will find the best examples of that character. When I, there are a lot of times, I have a super clear vision in my mind of who Superman is. I was about to ask you about that because he seems yeah. so archetypal. It's like, Jesus, where, how do you find the individual voice of somebody like that? Well, the tricky thing about that is that he's been written by a bajillion people yeah. and over the years for 85 years almost. Yeah. And so you've got to find the ones that speak to you. And um, to me, in my, in my mind's eye, I see like a more physical version of the Christopher Reeve version, basically. Like I, there's a lot of Christopher Reeve in the version that I see. There's also a lot of Grant Morrison, the writer I, I mentioned earlier, the all-star mm-hmm. Superman voice. So I would just, I would find the versions of, 
of Superman that are to me the most true and just kind of, just kind of waller in them. <laughs> it's kind of like this, this, you know, read or watch like a ton of that, of that dialogue, like in the, in those films in the Christopher Reeve films, I mean, those movies are not always perfect, but they're, but the voice of Superman yeah. to me yeah. is pretty perfect. And um, that also gets nailed in all-star Superman and in kingdom come at certain moments. So there's, I just kind of surround myself in really great examples of whatever that voice is just to, to really feel it and nail it. You know, I know you've got other projects that you're working on that are not comic book related. Do you ever see a time where you are no longer writing comics at all? Or do you think that'll always have to be a part of your DNA? That'll always have to be something you dedicate. I don't know, man. I mean, I've, I, uh, my life up till now, I mean, not so long ago, I, it was hard to imagine doing anything, but just playing the trumpet and not yeah. doing shit else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, if I, if, okay, there are, I've written a lot of comics and I really love it and I would love to do it a lot more. Um, if I got an opportunity to write a different kind of story that was not comics, but that I found as fulfilling as comics, um, I would not necessarily be opposed to moving forward and leaving comics behind someday. Um, if I'm getting the same kind of satisfaction out of it, like right now, my stars, my star is still kind of rising in comics and I want to ch- I want to hold on to that as long as I can before I inevitably plateau. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, you know, I gotcha. yeah. S- someday we'll find out where, like where my sales threshold is, like how big the characters are. One- I mean, Superman is like, I didn't expect to write Superman ever. Um, if I can, keep getting bigger and bigger gigs to a point where I, where I'm solid in comics, as long as I ever want to be here, I would like to have that. And then maybe start to move forward into film and, and other stuff. Um, and ideally still do comics. Also, I really admire Neil Gaiman. And mm-hmm. I really love the way that he has just refused to let himself get typecast. He said um, some interviewer, actually, maybe it was, I saw him speak live once in Baltimore, I believe, Baltimore or Washington, maybe. And um, he spoke about like back when he was still very, a very young writer, another writer at the time, somebody who was better established than him at the time said, uh, you don't have like a, like a niche. You got to find your niche. Hmm. Like you're, you're kind of all over the place. And he was kind of, and Neil was just like, Fuck that. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to just do novels and nothing else ever. Like even more specific than that, like just crime novels. Like this is my niche and this is my voice. This is the only thing I ever get to do again. He was, he was like, I want to write comics. I want to write novels. I want to write short stories. I want to write kids books. I want to write episodes of Dr. Who. I want to write films. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just gone on to do all of that. And he still does it all. I love that. He's there's a thing that he did at the Sydney opera house where he, he read aloud the story that he wrote while um, art by this prominent artist was projected on this big screen behind him and music is playing. And it's like that's this, awesome. like this yeah. living comic kind of that yeah. he did. Yeah. I was like, dude, that's so awesome. Like, and, and you know, I wasn't, I'm sure he wasn't thinking about how to sell it. He was just making something awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. what I want to do. I just, I just, just want to make beautiful things and um, not worry so much about how to sell them or, you know, what my niche is, you know, I, I really admire that. I think just because of the path that you've taken with the army with fitness, with MMA, what have you, do you think that that is, that's helped with some credibility when you're writing, especially the superheroes Um, you're, you're dealing with, you know, like you can, I I always felt like I could tell if um, especially the older I got, 
if a comic book writer had any actual experience getting punched in the face, because that makes a difference. And sometimes the superheroes lose credibility if you don't know what that's like. Do you find that? Do you find that you still draw on that and go, yeah, there's there's another level that I can bring to this because I've walked this path a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I um I do think that um getting in actual fights and breaking actual bones <laughs> it actually of my own, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um goes a long way towards kind of making it feel more authentic. And it's it's also helpful if the artist also has some experience with that kind of stuff. And not everyone does. There are artists I know who also have experience in MMA and, and real fighting and all that. And so I, I love working with those guys when that's the case. Um, but when that's not the case, sometimes I will send photo ref of a specific, specific mm. thing. Like if, huh. uh, if, uh, if somebody does, uh, like a, a Mirko Crow cop kind of like body kick or head kick or whatever, you know, like I I'll go and I'll look up some tape on it or like yeah. a, 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 pick or something and I'll, I'll i'll set up like this right here is what i'm talking about it seems like just about any comic book with a superhero fighting would probably do well to look at like a bob sap Mirko Krokop fight <laughs> yeah. i feel like that just that's just a, such a that's got super heroic things you know oozing out of it just i know that that was one of my first i still think of Krokop all, all the time and because I, I he was one of my first that was when i got out of when i was in basic i um you know, that was my first real experience with martial arts. And I'd always loved the idea of doing martial arts and had never had the time or never been close enough or parents that would take me or it just never really happened. Yeah. And then when I was in, when I was doing combatives, just basic, basic stuff in, yeah. in, in basic, I was like, this is dope as hell. <laughs> like I've got, and that's, it's not like I was good at it, but I was like, damn, I just love this. Yeah. So I got out and I found the nearest place that I found to post that was pretty decent was a, a Kempo place. I took some Kempo. The guy was super cool, like an army vet. Um, he's a good guy, like a like a great mentor type dude. Kempo was fine, but it wasn't yeah. exactly what I was looking for. And like the uh, like the katas and stuff, and it just seemed like I don't know. Like the yeah. the, the aesthetic is nice, but it didn't all seem practical. The thing that really kind of pushed me away from Kempo was how we would spend all this time doing all the all the techniques and like the you know the hammer fist or the whatever yeah. stuff. And then you get into sparring and everyone's just doing whatever. It's like a total free for all. No one's doing that shit. Was it Ed Parker? Was it an Ed Parker school? No, I don't think it was okay. anything. I don't think it was anything that I don't remember. I don't think so. Okay. It seemed like it was a little bit less organized than that. Okay. Um, huh. It was just some, the guy might've grown up doing Ed Parker, but he was, uh, he was kind of doing his own thing. And it was, you know, he was, he himself was very capable, but um but yeah, no one's using the stuff that we practice. Yeah. And yeah. that kind of, that really stuck out to me. It's like, huh, <laughs> like high, like black belts Yep, are, are just kind of doing their best and not doing, not doing what we, what we worked on. So then at some point I find like a combat Hapkido place. And again, that was fine, a little bit better. But then I went to my, my neighbor's UFC pay-per-view and I watched like legit MMA. And it was like this running through fields of daisies and like, <laughs> that that like this is what i've been looking for i was and i remember specifically crow cop um <laughs> doing these head kicks and the guy would cover up and the, and the leg would hit him and it's still it's like thrown for a loop and you could see the mat like shake yeah, yeah. it's just like so powerful and you see these awesome takedowns and like the whole night um, around that same time i watched uh bj penn like run through yeah. sean shirk and just these incredible fights 
And I'm like, dude, I got to fucking do this right away. And so I started finding places where, and instead of the slow, gradual progression to black belt, where you're, you're taking a really crappy uh, technique and slowly making it good in these classes, it was like, here's a double leg takedown. Here's how you do it. And of course, yes, you're still honing it and getting it good, figuring out how to do it, not get guillotined and all that. But it's, um, but it was a move that I could do right away. And it was so practical. Yeah. It's not yeah. like you're work. It's not like you're working your way up to like a Bruce Lee kick. It was like that you can't do at all right now. It was like here's the move. Here's a double leg. Here's an arm bar. Here's a you know. Here's how you do these things. And these are all moves that you can use to win a fight right away once you learn how to really do it. Um, I was just so into it, man, and, <laughs> and, and still am. If it's not yeah. clear right now, like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting kind of chills. The thing is, like I just love this shit so much, and I can't wait to get back into it. Um, and but, DC yeah. area's got a lot. I mean, that whole. Maryland, DC, yeah, Nexus. There's so many good schools now. We were yeah. down there for a little while, and I used to go to Ryan Hall School at Fifty Fifty. Oh, um, awesome! Was, That's a great was, one. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it's just it's so many, yeah, so many cool dudes doing stuff now. Um, and the way the games evolved, especially Jits game. Um, anyway, there's a great all. place that, like, when I when I do get back into it, there's this place called Conquest. Um, that's more like, like Millersville, Pasadena over closer to where my house is. Okay. That's also super legit. I have all faith in that school. So that's probably where I'll end up. Um, just cause it's, it's, it's further out of the city, but it's so good. And I just have complete respect for those guys. There's actually another member of my band right now. Uh, you, you talk, you talk about like, like, do you feel like, you know, this dick measuring bother you? It was like, dude, there's people in my band and, or just the bands in general who are, super legit like there's a guy there's a guy in my section that just started doing stuff not so long ago and he's going he's going like five six times a week just crushing it there's a guy in the the other band downtown who won the like best soldier competition Mm. uh, a few years ago he's like he's a clarinet player and he is so squared away in like every way like land nav combatives like pt a pt monster um this people in my band like just the whether or not their day job is to is to fire right. a rifle, they are so squared away and are all about just like personal achievement and yeah. betterment. Yes, that they just can't help but be incredible soldiers. That that's certainly been my experience in my very limited exposure meeting members of the band. Um, and obviously, you and Denver are, are <laughs> uh, you know certainly guys that that I expect nothing less from. But even. Um, let's call them more rank and file members of the band or not even the army field band. Um, but I, I think I met a guy from the national guard band or something, or I don't know. There's another band, but anyway, but well, in, again, in DC, probably good. No, part. he was in New York. I don't remember if he was a reservist or guardsman or uh, maybe he's an army reserve band member. I don't know. I know he was in the band. That's yeah, all yeah. I know. And he had, but he was like a uh, super motivated, high speed dude, great PT. Um, fought him in combatives like he was oh, like, awesome. he, he cool. was it been i was like i was like it's funny because it's just one of those jobs where i think uh because band it seems like your trademark is excellence and that just has to apply to multiple things it's not it, regardless of what the actual skill is that's really what the the calling card is yeah the, and, the, um, the pursuit of excellence on a musical instrument just carries over into so many different aspects yeah. of your life and I've, I've known so many people who it can also make you kind of neurotic because you you play a record. There's a there's a thing that we do in practice where you record yourself and you go back and listen and you just pick it apart and find anything that's not perfect 
And that's how you, uh, that's how you do it, man. Wow, wow. You got to listen to it and you just find, you just do not accept anything that is not perfection. So you're finding, you're just, the only thing you're even listening for is the negatives. Like that's like the, all the, all the awesome stuff you're doing. None of that shit matters. I just want to find the place where the vibrato doesn't match up or the intonation is slightly off or the tone starts to change just a tiny bit or the double tonguing is not quite as clean as the rest of it or what oh. you're just, you're trying to find anything that's not the ideal. What, and what that, that also, that yeah, also so. carries over into other aspects of your life where you're like, all you can well, see just is say, the bad yeah. stuff, you know? And what does that make, what does that make you like as a band member when you're playing with outside projects with people that aren't coming from that background? Do they look at you and go, oh, Jesus Christ, this guy's going to be real. Got to stick up his ass because he's just such a perfectionist. I mean, do, do civilian musicians respond well to that? Does it affect things? Like, what's what's the feedback you get? How does that I think relate? the civilian civilian musicians have the same kind of mindset. Like, it's, that's just a okay. musician thing where you're just okay. pick, picking yourself apart. That's just that's the process of getting to a high level as a musician. It's just... Um, just self-abuse, <laughs> just like find, finding anything that you're doing that's not perfect and just thinking about it all the time and fix and just working on that aspect all the time until you can play this piece super like as well as you want it to be. And then if you apply that to other areas of your life, I mean, it can be a destructive mindset as far as self-worth and like it's impossible not to attach your self-worth to your job or how, how sure. well you do a job. You just, you, you just do. Um, but you can also achieve at very high levels. And I've seen, I've, I've worked with some really amazing people who put themselves through the mill to get there, but in the end are really amazing people capable of amazing things. Do you see that rolling over into your writing as well? Do you see yourself doing a lot of QAQC and going, ah, I've missed this or I got to do that better? A little bit. I, I think artists have it worse than us in that regard. Um, artists pick themselves apart in very similar ways. Cause it's all like right there on the page. If your perspective is shitty or your faces or some aspect of your backgrounds or anything that's not good, they it's easier for them to pick themselves apart with writing. It's a little more nebulous. Um, it's kind of hard to really, to really say, wow, I really messed up this dialogue or i messed up this, the, you know, I got to the, I got to the end of the first act a little bit too soon here. Like yeah. it's just, it's just harder to really nail down the problems. It's harder to do on the writing on writing the script than it is to when you're drawing a page or when you're, um, you know, listening to a recording of something you're playing, you know, and you haven't felt that rollover. I mean, that that's, what's interesting is that you've had this mindset for almost 20 years musically, but when you're writing, do you kind of feel like it's a little bit of recess? Like you're able to not, crack the whip is hard and you can kind of have a little bit more latitude. No, it's just, it's just hard to put your finger on what's wrong or, <laughs> or, or great about it. Um, okay. Like I, for example, last night <laughs> I was, so we just added this, like this double sized Superman issue um, to the, the super to monthly Superman run. And um, so I'm, I'm kind of doing two books at one, I mean, well, four or five books instead of four <laughs> for the, Jeez. for the next, next few weeks. And it's just more than I can do. So for the for uh, the first time in a while, I'm turning in partial scripts so that I'm so I can stay in front of the artist because I've got three different artists writing different Superman issues at once. Wow! wow. And they all, I don't have time to finish one, send it, finish one, send it, finish one, send it. I need all of them to be working right now. <clears throat> so I'll write, I'll, I'll outline immaculately I'll outline and make sure that the outline is solid. Then I'll take a scene that I know will not have to be revised. 
because usually the different scenes will affect will impact each other. Maybe I'll have to take a page out of one scene so I can make another one longer, or mm-hmm. I'll, I'll move a dialogue beat from one scene to another, or like everything in the script affects itself, it affects the other scenes and the other issues will also affect each other too. So when I finally find a scene that I, that I know is locked in, that will not have to change, even though the rest of the script is not done, then I can send that that ish, that scene to the artist so that they can get going. Gotcha. Um, last night I needed to get a, um, a scene in to this artist who's waiting on pages and I, it didn't, it's not singing for me yet. So I, I just beat my head against that wall for hours last night until like dawn and it's not right. So I didn't send it. And I, uh, the guy's still waiting, but I don't, what I am terrified of is sending a script, sending a scene. And then later I figure out a way to make it way better. And now it's too fucking yeah. late because yeah. it's already on page. I'm not going to ask a dude to redraw anything. That's just hugely disrespectful and, um, and just not even practical. Like you want to get your artist mad at you. Yeah. Yeah. Take a page. Cause it takes an artist about a day to draw one page. And that's if they're fast to be like, Hey, this whole, this thing that you did all day yesterday, instead of playing with your kid, I need you to do it again. Cause I, you know, couldn't be bothered to do this a little bit faster. So it's comics is just this, this train that never stops rolling. And there's only so much track. You've got like a one mile long train and three miles of track and you're constantly disassembling it behind the train and putting it out in front of it so that it can keep going. Like that's how it feels all the time. Like this train that just, there's not enough track and you got to constantly build it. Um, and this, the, uh, the relentless schedule makes it difficult. And, uh, and especially when you're trying to balance it with that musician mindset I'm talking about where you want it to be your best work all the time. And uh, last night I kind of had to make the decision to, to not send a page that, that they need because it's not good enough. So that's, that's today. Now I've got to go pick up my son and take him to a birthday party. And while he's playing, I'm going to, I'm <laughs> going to be noodling. Yeah. I'm going to be sitting there with, with like writing longhand while I watch him in the pool. <laughs> you know? it, 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 it's a grind. I mean, it's a, it's a pleasurable grind in some ways because it is your, yeah. your mission. I love, but, I love I the work. It. I love yeah. the work. I love, <clears throat> I love the, uh, the stories we're telling. They matter to me. <clears throat> Sorry. My, uh, my energy drink is rasping my voice. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I am deeply grateful for the stories I get to tell. Um, but, uh, but the, the grind of the process is definitely difficult and, uh, it, it matters to me a lot. So I'm doing it, but, uh, hopefully I'll have better, have, hopefully I'll have better answers for you about how to balance everything next time we talk. <laughs> Dude, no, I mean, it, it, it seems to me like you're in the gym, you know, you're it, the workout sucks, but you're coming out of it with big muscles, like the work you're doing and the, the end result it is going to be stuff you can build on. Um, yeah, totally. so excited for you, man. Excited to see where this all goes. Um, come back. Come back and Dude, talk some point. I'd love to. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being so patient getting this together. And um, yeah, let's definitely do it again. I really, I deeply respect the stuff you're doing with Savage Wonder and we'd love to talk again. Dude, love it. We'll talk soon. All right, brother. All right, man. That was the Savage Wonder of Philip Kennedy Johnson. What a great dude. I so enjoyed talking to him. Uh, you've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists in the production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. The opinions expressed obviously do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. As always, check out what's going on with us at vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. If you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, 
Subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog at savagewonder.substack.com or just go to vetrep.org, go to our Now Playing tab. You'll see all of our lines of effort listed there, and you can click on the one that interests you the most. In this case, if you want to get onto the blog, you will see the option to click on our literary blog. You can subscribe to this podcast also at vetrep.org at the Now Playing tab. Um, or wherever you're listening to this podcast already. If you're listening to us on iTunes, obviously, we would deeply appreciate your five-star review. You can say whatever you want to us. If you could leave us a five-star review, though, that would be deeply appreciated. As always, we welcome your feedback in any number of forums, but especially on social media, at VetRepTheater on both Twitter and Instagram. You know, I'm actually thinking I might just kill the Twitter feed. I, I really hate Twitter. Uh, there's so many jackasses on Twitter, and none of it's impacted us. We don't, you know, we're not a political entity, so generally, you know, we don't attract a lot of heat rounds from uh, Twitter. But just to get on there, I feel it's just a toxic environment. I don't really enjoy being on it, and honestly, we don't. I, I really, you know, like sometimes I can multiple populate certain posts on different for onto Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. <clears throat> so that's about the only time I use Twitter, but even to go on and change my, you know, what I've pinned to my profile and all that, I'm really bad at doing that. So that's a very unenthusiastic uh, plug for our Twitter feed. If you desperately, desperately, desperately need to be on Twitter and follow us on Twitter, by all means do. We're at Vet Rep Theater, but Instagram is really where we try to do most of our heavy lifting for social media. Um, so at Vet Rep Theater as well on Instagram, or if you're on Facebook, we are at Veterans Repertory Theater. That's R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, and theater we spell E-R, not R-E. If you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog, go to VetRep.org. Again, go to our submissions tab, and you will see all the information you could possibly hope to know about how to submit, what to submit, who's eligible to submit, and uh, we'd love to read your work. All right. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater, see you next time. And we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all. <laughs>